Oh, hi. I didn't see you come in. Welcome to the Directors Club with Pratt and Al. We are podcasting as part of the Now Playing Network. Here on each episode of the Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director. Their uh, legendary celebrated works, cult favorites, labors of love, and hidden gems amongst their filmography. You can never tell what sort of themes and connections to other films can come up when you take a look at a director's whole body of work. Come join us on the film journey, a journey that this time takes us to a director whose work spans the divide between stupid and clever, Rob Reiner. It's also a journey that uh, has been going on for almost exactly one year now since uh, Jim has generously turned over the reins uh, to the director's club to uh, two newbies like us. (laughs) How do you feel about having gone through... So many directors has worked so far, Brad. It's it's really been a blast, and I sure hope that if it's been as much fun for our listeners, for the audience, as it has been for us, then uh, I think uh, we might get through the next year. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, there's some optimism I'd like to hear. Um, yeah, for me, I just can't be grateful enough to for uh, Jim Lechkowski, the uh, founder of the Now Playing Network and former host out from uh, Directors Club, who uh, gave us this opportunity. And over the course of the last past year, we've had a chance of looking at like some cult directors, some P- directors who've done like a series of uh, such a wide range of films, and had a chance to delve into j- the filmographies of some absolute legends. Like being able to like look through the details of films of Kurosawa and Orson Welles have been wonderfully rewarding. And looking at cult directors such as Richard Franklin and the cool things that they managed to do has been just wonderfully fun and enjoyable. And we hope you guys listening in have had the chance to uh, enjoy and get some inspiration or insight from what we've had to say. And I've seen a sneak preview of uh, the directors coming up for 2018, and frankly, I'm really excited about that list as well. Now, one of the most rewarding things uh, about this gig is getting to hear from you all about uh, your opinions on the films uh, and directors we review. And in that spirit, we want to try a, a fun little experiment. What we'd like to do is create a bonus episode that is programmed by you. So if there's a film that you want to hear reviewed, a film that you have strong opinions about, positive or negative, just something that you've always kind of wanted to put out there about, uh, about films, please go ahead and contact us. Let us know what you'd like to hear reviewed And then we're going to put together a bonus episode where we do a uh, listener's choice and do uh, short reviews of the films you'd like to hear about. If you have comments about the films, 
We will read them uh, live on the podcast and include you in the conversation. That's not required. You don't have to comment on it, but you're certainly invited to. Yes, we will uh, try our best to uh, put the Panted Directors Club uh, watching the hell out of the movie method to the films that you guys would suggest and also tie it in where uh, applicable towards the director's other films. Um, you can uh, offer us suggestions over at our email address at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com, our Facebook page at Directors Club Podcast, or our Twitter feed at DC Podcast. So we welcome to see what you guys would like us to have us review or comment on and post away or email away. So now we move on to the strange case of Rob Reiner, who is the son of famed uh, comedian and uh, television producer, film director Carl Reiner, uh, responsible for the Dick Van Dyke show for a number of films in the uh, late 70s and early 80s starring Steve Martin and responsible for our director today, Rob Reiner, who first got famous as Meathead uh, in the 70s <laughs> on the uh, All in the Family uh, show. <laughs> Long before um, Sean William Scott got the moniker of Stifler for the rest of his life, uh, poor Rob Reiner <laughs> has that designation, and uh, there may be when... Uh, he passes on. There will be R.I.P. Meatheads. <laughs> Sometimes you get that name that sticks. <laughs> well, you know, and it might it might have also <laughs> been one reason why he saw there uh, was possibly a limited acting uh, future for him, and so he said, "Hey, let's uh, let's try this directing business." But along the way, something very strange happened because. And Al, you and I might end up with different perspectives on this. I find Rob Reiner to be an extraordinary director for the first half of his career. In the 80s through the early 90s, I was blown away by the uh, quality, consistency, and just overall effect that his films had on me over a variety of different genres in a number of genres being uh, providing some of the best examples of them from the mockumentary to the coming of age film to the romantic comedy. Then in the mid nineties, something happened. And I think a lot of what this podcast is going to be about is discussing what was that? Because after 11 years all of a sudden, the quality stopped. And he proceeded after an incredibly consistent record of fine films to, in my opinion, uh, never do a good one again. Yeah, some people who think that like discussion on directors should be relegated to uh, cinema legends or... or people who have a big cult following might be curious as to go, Oh, why Rob Reiner guys? And I think that what makes it really interesting to look at this guy's work is exactly what you described because the graph of his quality films is a cliff. Like I don't know of anybody who has had such a clean break. And so my curiosity was piqued. By going, what went wrong? 
what happened to make these to have the films be this level of quality on one side and that level on the other. And yeah. I wonder if the part of that's also going to be like where he put how he puts films together and yeah, how things might go awry if they're slightly off. And it might also lead into our old friend, the auteur theory, which uh, I, I think is going to apply here as almost an argument against the auteur theory. This is a film theory developed by the French New Waivers in the 60s and continued by uh, American film critic Andrew Saris that basically says that the director is the prime mover of a film and that in the case where a director has a consistent body of work in terms of quality, theme, and film style, we can do what we often do is compare and contrast films throughout their career and make, make discoveries that way. Now, in the case of Rob Reiner, with this cliff happening, the one pattern that I think may be there is the quality of the writers who he works with. So is it possible, since he's in the first part of his career working with this array of legendary writers that he does not have access to in the second part, that that has something to do with it? Maybe. Also, there might be that some things that get uncovered, and it doesn't have to necessarily be a film technique, or even things that necessarily the director has actively trying to put in all of his films. Um, but that's what our exploration is kind of going to be all about. All right, so so let's boogie. Ultimate Boogie Band, the subject of Rob Reiner's directorial debut. It's the 1984 cult comedy, This is Spinal Tap. This groundbreaking mockumentary stars Michael McKeon, Christopher Guest, and Harry Shearer as the world's loudest band, trying to recapture their heavy metal glory days if they could just find the stage already. <laughs> well, any, any list I, that I would have of funniest films ever made... This, to me, is right there in, in the top five. It, it's one of those side-splitting movies. It's up there for me with uh, uh, Mel Brooks's best work, Airplane, Animal House, just the, the funniest films, and none of them have anything on Spinal Tap. Hmm, that's a bold statement. And while I... Absolutely agree with you that the movie is hilarious. I'm not sure I'm going to go like that far for reasons we're going to get into, but what makes it such a spirit of comedy for you? Well, part of it is in the way it was conceived, which was very unique. We've had uh, mockumentaries before. We uh, have had uh, even uh, one on uh, a rockumentary. We had uh, The Ruddles in 1978. Eric Idle's uh, parody of the Beatles. All you and need is cash, right? All you need is cash, yes, which was 
clearly something that the Spinal Tap guys watched and took notes on. And then a movie we've covered on a previous podcast, Real Life, from uh, Albert Brooks. So just as we've had mockumentaries before, we've also had uh, improvised films before, usually more in the, uh, in dramas like uh, John Cassavetes and uh, Robert Altman. Uh, but here, uh, as far as I know, this is the first real improvised mockumentary uh, that's become a mainstream film. And it was so unique that it, it wasn't actually a hit when it first came out. It took, a, it took a video release and a few years for it to really develop its cult following, which uh, became impressive in and of itself. But you've got an amazing set of uh, comedians who have not only worked together previously, but have played music together. Uh, Michael McKeon and Christopher Guest were part of a group based on uh, McKeon's Laverne and Shirley character, Lenny, uh, Lenny and Squiggy, oh. and they had a group <laughs> called Lenny and the Squigtones okay. that actually released an album in the late 70s, and when they were on like a show like American Bandstand or something, they were being interviewed, and somebody put a mic in front of this uh, guitarist in 1979 and asked him who he is, and he said in this British accent, uh, Nigel Tufnell. And so this idea of the Spinal Tap band had been around, had been gestating a long period. And so these comedians had time to build an entire shtick, an entire uh, set of characters that because we're dealing with such talented com comics, really reach high levels of comedy, uh, Harry Shearer, Michael McKeon, and Christopher Guest each have very distinctive beats to their comic timing. None, I think, better than uh, Christopher Guest, whose every utterance uh, has the dimmest of the the tappers. Uh, I just find as funny as can be. One of the film's biggest marvels is that it manages to somehow split the difference by being a winning kind of concert tale of a band's um, uh, uh, trek into obscurity <laughs> and also just come across as a completely natural, real look at three very, very weird, goofy, and hilarious characters. There were weird characters, obviously, and uh, takes on the Beatles and in the Rottles and, and, and in the parody films of Mel Brooks, but never before has it done in an improv manner to be so natural. Just It's just br rather breathtaking to have these uh, people riff at each other in what feels like uh, having these three people riff over how many drummers have been killed and how this one guy just died choking on someone else's vomit, for example, <laughs> is, is just really wonderful to behold. And it lends so much credence to when they're situ when they get into increasing more absurdities that it leads to like these just ring of truth uh, over and over again, no matter how silly things get. And Rob Reiner has basically said that to the extent that he 
directed the film, it was pretty much directed in the editing because they let the camera roll for uh, hours and hours and hours capturing all this improv with only uh, situations to go by. So it's totally and, improvised. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah, there, there, there certainly was a progression, a plot progression that they that would have had to be planned. But as far as all the lines, all the uh, the moments, uh, and of course the songs would have been pre-written. So yeah, but that brings us back to the director's role, which in this case is not inconsequential because a movie can't be this good unless it was edited this good. But most of a lot of the credit can probably goes to the improvisers themselves. Now, how much of this do you think though is a Rob Reiner joint and how much of it do you think is the Christopher guest joint? Christopher guest is like done subsequent films such as waiting for Guffman best in show. And the style of this is that kind of movie and not particularly uh, a Rob has yet to follow in that footstep. Yeah, I think it's a, a fair question because of the divergent paths that, that they went. I, I don't think you can dismiss Rob Reiner's role here. Uh, if the directing is the editing in this case, we still have a damn fine edited film. We have a tight film that takes all this improvisation and turns it into what's really a, a very engaging story. But it certainly would be fair to note that this resembles nothing of Rob Reiner's subsequent career and that it's possible that the tools that he would use going forward would not be the tools that he used on this film. But at the same time, I guess... When you see the different eras that Spinal Tap was involved in, it's such, for example, it's such a pitch-perfect look at the um, flower power generation. Right. Listen to what the flower people say. And uh, and a nice 50s evocation in Give Me Some Money. Um, there, he's so effective at bringing in the period details, which work in like some of the best comedies. Like what makes films like Airplane and Young Frankenstein work so well is that it's very clear that they dead on know what those details are like for the for those things, and there's an attention to detail that almost becomes across like love and affection towards that very subject. Right, but also a friendly mocking because these guys know the rock and roll world. When they particularly skewer the heavy metal music of the late 70s and early 80s, they have uh, uh, something that's rich with parody. And so it's funny that real rock stars uh, have uh, come out and said, you know, when I saw Spinal Tap, I thought this really was a documentary because this kind of thing really did happen to us, the real rock band. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the different stage mishaps, problems with wireless microphones, uh, record promotions that go horribly wrong, uh, meeting up with bands that are on the upswing while you're on the downswing, and the many ways that 
the rock absurdity can be mined for how pompous they think what they're doing is versus the actual silly activities that they're actually involved in are uh, given a, a, a lot of fun exploration in this one. Because when you end up opening for a puppet show. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's really interesting how it doesn't descend into like melancholy of a just what, if you really think about it, is of quite a depressing type story <laughs> of, a ba- of, a, of a band's once heights just gets more and more pathetic well, as, the, as things go along and they suffer just such an increasing series of humiliations. But what's great is they're too stupid to notice. <laughs> they're, they're, they're so dim. That's their that quality. They, <laughs> yeah. That they're still, they're still having fun and you know they, uh, they wrote the songs and the, the song are actually a lot of fun uh, in and of themselves. Oh, and then they're like mm-hmm. they're pitched the way they parody things is is pitch perfect. I mean, like in Big Bottom, is that any less goofy than the uh, ACDC classic Big Balls? It might argue might be more literary. <laughs> and in a kind of an in joke, features all three uh, leads playing bass, which uh, is often That's, referred to as the bottom in, yep. in the rock lingo. Yep. Show, yeah. it shows that they did like know their they did know their stuff for both like musicianship and the musician stories. And here's a little fun detail on the um, on how much this movie got right in terms of the details is that like my my best friend was lucky enough to see this movie on PBS, which aired like very soon after its release, but it was aired as if it was a straight up documentary of these musicians going through the touring process. Now this meant since they treated it as a straight documentary, that means that they aired it completely unedited. So, there is a moment like three quarters of the way through where in an argument between Nigel Tufnell and David St. Hubbins in the studio leads to a, uh, a full of expletives, none of which were censored. So imagine, imagine my friend's <laughs> astonishment as he was I, like nine or 10 at the time to hear just this onrush of foul language emerging from channel 11 in Chicago. <laughs> like, <laughs> Blew his mind. <laughs> now, there's an interesting facet I want to just bring up on on Spinal Tap, which is that while it is a super, super funny movie and just mines so much great absurdity that it looks like it's emerging right from the moment, I actually think as a satire, it's not as successful as other films might be why why do i why do i say that because like these guys are rock guys and yet they with regards to they don't do stuff that you expect rock stars or want to be rock stars to be involved in like there's very little drugs that happen in it there's very little sex that happens in it and there's um uh very little like of the rampant sense of egomania, except when, when you're not talking to um, uh, uh, Mar- uh, the constantly put upon Marty DeBerge character played for by like Rob Reiner itself. These guys are more um, 
idiotic, non-threatening children who are playing with instruments more than actual people who were involved in the rock scene for, for decades. You know? Well, if you're looking for that kind of scene stuff, uh, you might uh, find some in the deleted scenes, which the uh, DVD and Blu-ray have provided us a good uh, hours worth of. I do like, I do really like those outtakes because they do, mm-hmm. it does show them that there are more actual, that's rock star, that's rock star behavior. Of course, you're going to mess up the limo driver, uh, which by the way, Bruno Kirby is really great for getting abuse heaped on him. <laughs> I think that's kind of one of, that's one of his strengths. <laughs> and the parts where they're making fun of the, of the rampant, of the rampant drug abuse and the, the topless lady, the completely naked lady who's wandering around who can't find her contact lens <laughs> <laughs> is, is just as funny to me. Uh, and so I'm very, I'm intrigued as to why they decided to shave those things off. Maybe it was the idea that like the movie's more accessible if these guys are completely not threatening or you don't think of Nigel Tufnell as a dick. You know, well, let, let me suggest that some of that remains in the, the final cut. There are groupies hanging out more in the deleted scenes, but also in the in the regular film. So I, I think what you're you're looking for is, is there, but it's just not sh- given the spotlight treatment. And, you know, a comedy film, as you know, you know how few great comedies there are how any given year to try to find a movie this funny or a movie you could laugh all the way through is difficult and part of that is because there's this real balance that needs to be struck that also has to do with uh, running length and yeah you could have made it an, an entire hour longer and had some more great gags in it but from my point of view, since I can't find a flaw in the finished product, I, I, I could only gather that any, anything else would make it less perfect for, for, for me. <laughs> if I was to offer uh, one idea of a couple of those scenes could be substituted for the rather odd appearance of mimes at a swanky party. A mime is money. Mime is not money. Mime is being trapped in a box while a strong wind blows. And certainly not really very related to catering. It's it's a bit of oddment that doesn't really have anything yeah. to do with the story applied from that Billy Crystal and Dana Carvey uh, were willing to go and help out. Mm-hmm. I do have to point out that it, does, it might have Rob Reiner's single greatest bit of direction when the infamous Stonehenge... Because you have, in order for the Stonehenge thing to work like gangbusters, you have to have exactly the perfect angle as this mighty pillar is descending. (laughs) And for for that moment, you don't you don't really realize that you got the feet and inches mixed up on the diagram. Yeah, that leads to the concert sequence, which is one of the comic highlights, and which would continue. They're all so great, it, it really is, uh, and it would be continue to become a set piece as Spinal Tap, the band, had a post movie life. They reunited a couple times and had an did, album called "Break Like the Wind," I exactly, believe. Exactly, and they did uh, an actual tour. And their audio commentary on the DVD and Blu-ray 
is in character as the group. And their take on it is that uh, Marty DeBerge, i.e. Rob Reiner, had done a hatchet job on them and that the movie was completely misleading and making them look stupid, which, of course, they're not. Right, right, right. No, no. They've, yeah, like when you were pointing out that the shirt you're wearing is an exact version of your skeleton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want the, can- the direction to just like make you appear like you're foolish or anything like that. <laughs> And in addition, of course, to Spinal Taps's uh, their tours and their albums and their um, Simpsons appearances, which were also magnificent, um, they had um, a great legacy in terms of the further films of the collaborator Christopher Guest, of course, and a whole slew of of those these type of films. Two that I would recommend is a rap equivalent by Rusty Kandif called Fear of a Black Hat. Oh, that's a funny one. I love that too. So good. Yeah. So good. In a in a great takeoff of um uh the um ever shifting drummers in Spinal Tap, their managers keep getting killed, for which the band is always out of town conveniently at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but also pitch perfect like parodies of of gangster rap and PM Dawn like increased consciousness uh um, music and so and so on. Is there ice froggy frog? Ice cold and tasty taste. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and there is even a really wonderful take on Spinal Tap called Hardcore Logo about a Canadian punk band with the same name and their attempted disastrous tour, which actually takes the Spinal Tap formula and moves it one step further. Because whereas the to, to eleven. <laughs> Well, that would be one further, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> in, because while in Spinal Tap, everyone just basically means well, and they're just uh, come across as silly. Here in Hardcore Logo, they actually not only are also playing their punk songs, but they behave like actual punks, which means they mess with each other. They pull practical jokes. They're like they just get into fights on a moment's notice, and they, in a wonderful move they start messing with the director hmm. and the director starts messing back with them. So it becomes like he gets some information and he uses it to play different band members against each other. So it actually becomes a bit of a, like a, a whole personal conflict on top of the hilarious punk saws and, and goofy shenanigans that happen on there. So it's a, uh, so if you guys love spinal tap, it's a real fun follow-up to do. And then actually its legacy can be seen in all of the single-camera TV shows that have ma- manifested themselves out today. Stuff like The Office or A Modern Family, where people are um, uh, uh, doing these silly things, and then they cuts to them like talking to the camera about what the hell they did or what the hell they'd like to do. I think that kind of owes a debt even more than to real life than to what spiraled that. Right, definitely, because I, I, that I think also the subsequent Christopher Guest movies led to that as well but this is the movie that made all those possible yes that's right i kind of think more the in my personal opinion i kind of think pure guest is um waiting for guffman because it gets the pathos of their descent quite perfectly whereas spinal tap is too silly and fun and infectiously enjoyable to fully get that (laughs) feeling you know what i'm saying 
And maybe a little of a mighty wind gets that feeling too. Right, and the mighty wind has the three actors uh, in Spinal Tap uh, doing folk, uh, folk music. music. I believe so. they're called what the folks. Was, right? I think so. Yeah. Uh, although my favorite non-Spinal Tap Christopher Guest is actually best in show about uh, dog shows. Yeah, uh, like Fred Willard's uh, inquisitiveness of whether the dogs can bark in their own languages to understand each other is one of the many, many priceless moments in that one. (laughs) Speaking on priceless moments, if you highly recommend you look at the DVD of it because there is a wonderful intro of Rob Reiner introducing the movie for uh, distributors, and he doesn't have any footage to show them, so they do a parody of a travel visit to a uh, east small European town which has a tradition of cheese rolling featuring the cast of Spinal Tap in totally different roles. Right. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's just brilliant and just <laughs> just has um, concludes on like for example uh, a great line of saying and so as the sun set on another suicide filled Scandinavian <laughs> evening <laughs> So moving from something timeless to something that really is very much of its time, we uh, head to Rob Reiner's second film, which is 1985's The Sure Thing, starring John Cusack as a horny college student who travels cross-country to meet a California bikini babe. His buddy, played by Anthony Edwards, guarantees will fulfill the movie's title. But since he's traveling with uh, his classmate Daphne Zuniga, true love may complicate the quest. Mm. This is um, an interesting case of the um, a couple of John Hughes-style premises all tied together by <laughs> pure Cusack. Right. It, it, it came out at a time where there were approximately... A million of these movies out. Uh, the mid '80s was the heyday of the teen sex comedy, and you had things like Porky's on the raunchier end of things, and then the John Hughes stuff on the tamer end of things. And it, this is even the third in the kind of a John Cusack trilogy of films that, until I saw this, I always used to confuse with each other <laughs> yeah. uh, between this and uh, Better Off Dead, right, and, which is awesome, and it's right? Right by the way, <laughs> and One Crazy Summer. Yes, both directed by Savage Steve Holland, which... Uh, is that and, right? Yeah, and he had a sense of zaniness, which is... A, this is a, playing things quite a bit straighter. Well, it, it, it does something that I'm sure is the reason why Reiner wanted to, to do this, because it, it's a bit of a bait and switch. It sets itself up as this raunchy sex comedy, but very much shifts into love story mode and becomes a much sweeter movie than you would expect. And then, and that's a little difficult considering how John Cusack uh, plays his character pretty uber aggressive. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it puts that under the disguise of a road movie, you know, and, and this is something maybe to think, maybe to think about is unlike 
a lot of those movies which totally dive in on, oh my God, oh my God, what's going to happen for him? Like, I think Reiner makes a conscious choice to make The Sure Thing, played by Nicola Sher- Sheridan, mm-hmm. as a fantasy. Right. Like, there is, it's, is this like some sort of like Sonny uh, Crockett, like uh, Miami Vice fantasy world where Cusack's strutting around this empty, empty white mansion with, um, uh, and having these languid conversations. It's actually maybe like a cross between Miami Vice and, uh, um, and an ad for Calvin Klein's uh, obsession, <laughs> you know? Yeah, and uh, again, a typical movie uh, in this period would have really focused on his quest for the sure thing, and will he get laid or won't he get laid, and yep. that's about the limits of uh, of what we're looking at here. But to use that as kind of a a, a side note while developing a love story between the two leads is a nice uh, original way to go about it. How would you rank it in terms of the Hughesiverse? Like, I think it's a little bit lower than even, um, uh, oh my gosh, what was the Eric Stoltz one? Um, uh, some kind of wonderful, yeah, which I have I not seen. <laughs> I think it's even a little lower than the some than the some kind of wonderful. I don't think this reaches the level of the Breakfast Club, but the kind of movie that it goes so far beyond. Uh, is is the Porky's type stuff. Mm. And so I I think, you know, we're grading this thing on a curve depending on what we want to compare it to because there there was so much of it at the time. Here's the thing. I don't think this is independently a great movie. I think it's enjoyable. It's got its charm. It's it's got its fun. But if we looked at Spinal Tap as something so out of the ordinary and strange that we're kind of wondering the directorial responsibility, this is almost like Rob Reiner's debut in a lot of ways as a yeah, regular as a standard film director. You know what? I think that's a great point. Yeah, it, this is a case where he is film is quite conventional in its subject matter and. I kind of see a little bit of where he's more conservative. It's not very raunchy at all. No. In and fact, the opening credits uh, are is uh, the credits over Nicolette Sheridan oiling herself up. Mm-hmm. And Rob Reiner said that he couldn't, wouldn't even be on set for that because it made him too embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> That's really that's really interesting, and it also ties into um, some of the directions that he put Spinal Tap in. In his wonderful intro, which he gave to distributors, he, he would actually he bragged to distributors about the about the um, uh, topless model, and it's just hilarious terms, like saying, mm-hmm. "Hey, there's going to be a woman, a, na- a totally naked woman in this movie. Big tits. Kids will eat that shit up." <laughs> <laughs> and it's, I mean, and it's it's great how wonderfully cynical he is in that one. But but said person does not feature, so it's interesting how his angle seems to turn towards like some sort of conservative conservative kind of bent, you know. And in context with how things go in his other films, like that might be an interesting angle to look at because I think his conservatism really shows in an interesting way out in his next film, out Stand By Me in 1986. Fall is here, hear the yell, back to school, ring the bell, brand new shoes, 
talking blues Climb the fence, books and pens I can tell that we are gonna be friends Now, this film is set in the late 50s, and it follows four boys as they wander their small town forest to be the first to find a rumored dead body. But along the way, friendships are tested, and innocence is lost in this coming-of-age tale based on a Stephen King novella. Yes, and the first thing I want to note about this film is how well it captures Stephen King's voice. And it might really be the first film to do that, because even though there have been great films based on Stephen King books prior, Carrie was very much a Brian De Palma film in his own voice. The Shining was a Kubrick film in his voice. Same, and how, man. <laughs> yes. Same with uh, The Dead Zone in David Cronenberg's voice. But here, having read The Body, uh, part of the uh, Different Seasons uh, set of novellas, which also includes uh, The Shawshank Redemption, okay. uh, this, this movie really captures the way Stephen King writes. What a lot of people love about Stephen King is not just, it's not just how scary he could be, but also his wonderful sense of character, sense of dialogue, and especially when dealing with, uh, with a coming-of-age story like this, a- an opportunity to explore what it's like to be 12, in my opinion, better than any other film I've ever seen trying to explore this subject matter. Interesting. That's another... Um Big statement you're uh, you're making on on that. I will say I agree with you at Steve that it matches a lot of what Stephen King does. Albeit I haven't had a chance to read that the body, but he's really good at putting up the sense of place, the idea of like this New England environment, this New England kind of environment, and that I think is one of Stand by Me's strengths is. It makes you feel like you're in this kind of world, which is 50% the geographical location and 50% this kind of innocent kind of fantasy world that the kids transverse. It's, it's how the kind of grand, sense of grand adventure that four kids in that position might feel as they go on their trek through the woods. Right. We, we look at the world through their eyes. Uh, it's narrated by Richard Dreyfus, who plays uh, one of the boys, the Will Wheaton character, uh, all grown up. The other kids are uh, River Phoenix, uh, Corey Feldman, and Jerry O'Connell. Jerry O'Connell, with really uh, Will Wheaton and River Phoenix doing the heavy lifting uh, as far as the drama of this goes. And they are really extraordinary. Uh, child actors as they dig into their various um, family and community issues, there are some scenes of such, you know, honest emotion that I was very impressed that how these kids conveyed this. And of course, River Phoenix in particular went on to a very powerful career until uh, he died uh, of of drugs uh, in the next decade. Mm-hmm. 
all the more ironic that he's a character who disappears at the end of uh, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> at the end of uh, Stand by Me. Uh, like one of the spookier things that's come out of a King movie mm-hmm. is how his early demise is echoed years before it happens. <laughs> I got to beg to differ a little bit on the acting of these four kids. I think they kind of vary all over the place. Now, kids, kid actors have had the value people place uh, in Hollywood for kid actors. A lot of cases is the matter that they can stand where they need to stand and they say the lines where they need to stand and convey the emotion in a general way. You know, it's very rare to find a emotive kid actor who's just bringing things out in a, in a way that like fully adult actors do. This kind of, you can see that in River Phoenix. River Phoenix does just deliver these really great emotional moments, as you uh, um, mentioned. Like, there's a very potent part where he talks about how he's alienated from his uh, family, and uh, he goes to some really interesting emotional places. Wheaton, I think, kind of does more go through the motions, and there's points where he needs to cry, or points where he needs to get upset, and he acts like that in a more general way. And then we have Jerry O'Connell, who to me just flat out stinks. He's he is so he is so flat in terms of just looking dumb in ninety percent of his um, role, and then saying dumb things in the most unaffected way possible. That honestly, at times he reminded me of the Howard the Duck animatronic puppet in his movie. I don't think he stinks. I think he has a different role in the story, and they cast him. Uh, Jerry O'Connell was a year younger than the other kids when they were cast, and he's kind of the goofy, hapless comic relief. He's flounder. And he's flounder. (laughs) And this is not his story. He adds... Uh, color to the story. He, he I, I didn't find him off-putting, I guess, the way you did, but he's certainly not hitting the kind of notes that, that Wheaton and Phoenix are hitting. And then kind of as a, a compromise, uh, Corey Feldman does have uh, some dramatic moments, but he's uh, this very damaged character, which again, eerily uh, yeah. replicates his, <laughs> his real life. Right. But he's this very odd duck. And so him not necessarily being a great actor still kind of conveys yeah. his own weirdness in a way. But yeah. but uh, but kind of taking the, the these four as a whole and, and and their journey and the way the way it's shot, the way they utilize train tracks as a repeated uh, motif for this journey, even the fact of the journey that the, 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 that the way they're going to lose their innocence is not the standard way through some kind of sexual adventure, but through the idea of actually seeing a dead body uh, provides this very singular uh, quality that ties in with the nostalgia of the late 50s period. You've got this great soundtrack full of, uh, of the songs of the time. You've got uh, not only the dramatic moments, but so many funny moments of the kids just talking about dumb kids stuff as 12-year-olds are, are going to do. And I don't know, I found there to be, even though I, I, I don't, you know, most of us growing up didn't have this exact kind of adventure to mark our coming of age there there's a real truthfulness to this film that 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 i love that that really reminds me 
of what it's like to be 12. Hmm. That's really interesting because I don't feel that. In fact, I kind of feel the opposite in that this is the first film where I see the gears moving even even more than the maybe even more than the sure thing for a, because not only is Jerry O'Connell the flounder, but Corey Feldman is the wild card. He's the crazy guy. Mm-hmm. He's the wacky guy. When I look at the the movie, it's so obvious that these two guys, O'Connell and Feldman, whose main purpose is to exist to make the dynamic between Will Wheaton and River Phoenix, like there there's and there's two moments in the movie where where like literally they're just walking behind one moment they're walking behind the train tracks like 30 feet behind for no reason just so that the other two can just have a conversation right it's not their story and then well okay but then they're they're but yet it is it is cuz they're there on the they're there on the trek with them well right? i should say it's and, not their point of view no it is not their point of view and then and then in a what in a moment i found kind of obnoxious when there's a very climactic and dramatic moment those guys just leave. They just, they just, and by, and by leave, I don't mean that they mm-hmm. have to go somewhere else in the woods. They literally just walk off screen, mm-hmm. and they might just be like five feet away, but have no involvement whatsoever in this incredibly dramatic thing that could, that absolutely should have threatened all four. Mm-hmm. And to which it was just like, yeah, you, yeah, we don't need your comic relief. Get the hell off stage. Get the <laughs> hell off stage. It's just these two guys. And I, I didn't think that was cool. And I also personally. They ladled on the Stand By Me song way too thick. It's just like uh, I was going through points where going, nostalgia, the movie, <laughs> nostalgia. I mean, maybe my the things that I find sentimental or more nostalgic are, are different. They're just simply different. Right, because what you, you obviously are using nostalgia in a derogatory term, but when I see a film that brings out nostalgia, I'm, if it's done right, I'm actually very happy with that. that that's actually mm-hmm. something yeah. that I really enjoy in a film. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, I guess my, but my take on that is that like, I adore a film by David Gordon Green called George Washington, and those feelings that you express for Stand By Me, I absolutely feel mm-hmm. at a mo- and moments in, moment by moments in George Washington. But that film has the, the moments to me come across, like, just by surprise, because it's just a random way, like, the kids are splashing around the pool, or just a random way uh, kids are screwing around. Mm-hmm. Like, when, the, when they're screwing around in Stand By Me in the... Um, leech infested uh, uh, pond um, that does that does hint at that but but George Washington just by virtue of having the the events there seem more random more emerging from the natural situation whereas the stuff in stand by me seems more like it's coded in this uh, vaseline of sentiment <laughs> <laughs> With regards to the George Washington comparison, I think they're mostly different in the sense that George Washington is a very realistic film where Stand By Me is a memory. Remember, everything is taking place in Richard Dreyfuss's head as he's writing this story. We are seeing what he remembers. We should note a scene that's a real uh, outlier. It's 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 in the book, and it's uh, it's a strange uh, divergent from the rest of the movie. But it's a, a story that uh, that Gordy tells uh, his friends right. uh, about uh. a pie eating contest and about a huge fat guy named Lardass who is 
eating pies for revenge. <laughs> and uh, it leads to the most disgusting and possibly funniest part of the movie. A lot of people have pointed out as, as, as something that, that doesn't really fit in the context of the rest of the movie. But I, I think it does because it's a story being told by one kid to another. Yeah. And you know that this is the kind of thing that a 12-year-old would just find hysterical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a fun surprise when you uh, uh, start watching like a Rob Reiner movie based off a Stephen King novella and then see a little bit of a Peter Jackson movie (laughs) in the middle of that. Uh, And it's also about the Will Wheaton character tells a story, and it's also a reminisce by the now adult version of Will Wheaton's character. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a story. A storytelling of story akin to maybe like how the um, how Reservoir Dogs might be about stories telling stories. There's a notable poem moment where Mr. Orange has to make a story and get the details mm-hmm. his own to tell people to get into the gang to do the robbery. Right. So it also has a little there's a little meta level coming on in there, and also a notion of fantasy versus reality, which might be a little bit of a continuation from the Sure Thing. And is definitely the subject of his next film, The Princess Bride. Right, said Princess Bride is a swashbuckling romantic adventure comedy from 1987. Framed as a storybook, a grandfather reads to his grandson. Robin Wright is Buttercup, and her true love is Carrie Elway's farmhand Wesley. But with Wesley kidnapped and Prince Humperdinck wanting to make her his bride, storybook characters and tropes are brought to life, just not in the way you'd expect. Yeah, sometimes you come across, like, a film which looks deceptively simple, but you really want to, in this case, you really want to put a magnifying glass to just recognize how hard it is to do what Rob Reiner did so, in my opinion, successfully in The Princess Bride. You have to navigate a fantasy story, a fairy tale, something that even a kid the age of Fred Savage would not believe and doesn't believe in the story and at the end make both him and us in the audience buy into it and appreciate it at the same time. Yeah, it's really a hell of a balancing act because one move too close to comedy and it's a complete farce, one move too close to trying to take this thing seriously and you're in kind of a never-ending story realm but he has found this unique place in the middle of all this where it's you're really involved in just just like for the the kid is in the story that's being told but you're also getting this uh outsider pov winking 
at the the genre itself, at uh, characters that you wouldn't expect to find, like uh, Wallace Shawn playing one of the villains, the famously inconceivable. <laughs> and he's got all these really funny notes that are pure Wallace Shawn that has really nothing to do with the story. But somehow the way it's put together, it doesn't feel like it's something, it doesn't feel out of place. It feels like it belongs to this skewed world. It's very tough to make craft a movie world consistently where all everything has the same rules. And if you, as an audience member, reduce your uh, suspension of disbelief, it just becomes, oh, I'm just looking at these idiots like in costumes saying forsooth and yay verily and all that. And even though this is a movie that's explicitly making fun of people saying forsooth and yay verily, you're rolling with it. And all the inconsistencies, like you say, completely make a world where those situations work where like you would see some incredible absurdity upon a guy rolling down and endlessly down a hill (laughs) and then 10 minutes later have some a character just say out of the blue well what is life but pain and disappointment right (laughs) (laughs) like like, wow (laughs) and just um uh, or a comedy of manners as someone uh, uh negotiates how to get a rope on uh to get off a cliff Right, or uh, Billy Crystal showing up uh, as uh, uh, Billy Crystal and Carol Kane as this uh, old couple who uh, help our heroes at one point and uh, give us their best uh, Yiddish accents. Yeah, that's right. Those are like uh, when they make the fantasy version of When Harry Met Sally, those two are going to be on the couch. (laughs) (laughs) And then putting in a professional wrestler in the mix, Andre the Giant, who surprisingly enough, when you you look at the history of professional wrestlers in movies, actually provides uh, a lot of sweetness to, to the film. Yeah, right. He's such a fun he's such a fun presence. In fact, all three of those um, vil- would be villains are um, are a fun are a fun presence. Right. Mandy Mandy Patinkin is one with all the quotable lines. Indigo Montoya, man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, his interactions with uh, Wesley in his secret form are just great as they as they both celebrate and comment on the absurdities of the um, classic swashbuckling Errol Flynn type films of yesteryear. Right. You've got really this perfect set of casting going on all, all around. Uh, and I think the linchpin might be that the grandfather is Peter Falk because there's an inherent sentimentality to this kind of story that you'd expect and you kind of have to deal with. But if you understand that the story is being told by Peter Falk in his incredibly odd delivery (laughs) and just, just, you know, I I love, I love Peter Falk. Everything he does is just a little off, which makes it work. (laughs) And, and the same thing goes here. So it's like, if the story's off, it's because Peter Falk is off. (laughs) Yeah. It's, quite miraculous i'm i think it's really fun to like examine the just the very peculiar alchemy of it like to just take just one example imagine if his fellow uh, castmates ben gazzara or john cassavetes (laughs) was the grandfather telling listen kid we just listen (laughs) wouldn't quite work just as well now now would it you know (laughs) and in fact folks colombo like delivery didn't really introduce to make such a wonderful warming warming yet ornery in the most delightful way presence of the grandfather. He threatens to stop the story at a number of times once he knows the kid is hooked in. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I I mean, a really good 
pay attention must be paid to just how the movie always has the right moment to tweak the structure. Like when there's a moment, like there was very smart for both the writer, William Goldman and Reiner himself, that right when we are thinking, okay, the story's a little sappy, it cuts back to like to have the kid in voiceover going, oh no, they're not going to go kiss, are they? (laughs) (laughs) Very, very perceptive how how it does that. Now, William Goldman is considered one of Hollywood's great writers of the period. He even wrote a, uh, a book that's considered the, uh, the textbook on writing. Yes. Which is, uh, his adventures in the screen trade. Mm-hmm. He's uh, a legend, a legend for writing for all the president's men and uh, butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid among many, many others. Right. And th- this would also be a good point to, to note how Rob Reiner himself is genre hopping. There's a, a, nothing in his previous uh, set of films that would make you think he's the guy for this story, but he has such uh, such a touch for it. Uh, the exact level of sweetness and sarcasm required. Because the princess's name is Buttercup. I mean, you've already start. You're just starting at that point. The name, the, yeah, that that point, man. It's like Buttercup, really. Like, um, uh, that's kind of the name you give like your third favorite cow. Dude. Right, right. <laughs> but I think like Goldman had said that like he got the title of the movie by asking his two daughters, "Hey, if you want to make a, a a fantasy story, a story, what would you?" What is it? Would you let the story to be about? And one daughter said a princess, and the other one said a bride. And so he combined the he it's a combined compromise. The yeah, yeah. But I think like some interesting things in the movie are coming out from the the naming convention. Elway's first presents Wesley presents himself as the Dread Pirate Roberts, and it's a really fun detail how Dread Pirate Roberts is not actually maybe he was once a real person, but now he's a moniker that other people use to uh, effect being a pirate, then they can just retire and pick another person. Yeah, it's, it's a cool touch. And, and always is a interesting choice because he has the, uh, the look for this kind of leading man, um, Robin Hood type role. He would actually end up parodying Robin Hood later in yeah. uh, Mel Brooks's uh, worst film, Robin Hood, uh, uh, what the hell, uh, Men in Tights. But uh, Robin Hood, what the hell is probably the yeah, title. exactly. <laughs> but 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 here he's just kind of this bland center yeah. where yeah. all the all the insanity is happening around him, and like a quality straight man, he just kind of. Moves forward as if he's in a as if he's in a real adventure. <laughs> he actually spends the last fifteen minutes not being able to move at all. Right? <laughs> what is the what is the Princess Bride really saying about our erstwhile hero and his ability to affect things in the story? In fact, I think he talks his way out of into winning the day by literally bluffing his opponent. Right. Right. And th- yeah, how that's another really interesting touch. How he describes the ultimate humiliation. Of which something that doesn't actually happen, but it's the fact that it defeats the villain anyway that is the ult- villain's ultimate humiliation. Yeah, I I totally feel exactly the same way you do about Elway's, who's he's a classically handsome, I guess, looking fellow, also kind of is not that interesting as a hero, but it works for this movie because it's commenting on the 
the idea of the um, uh, hero. And and in a w- and like Indigo Montoya on his quest, though, I'm totally on, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm totally on board with that. And I think the movie's really making a pair. Um, uh, the movie's really making a really fun tongue in cheek look at like at how um uh, how. Wesley is like much like Batman from the TV show. He is clearly superior in bronze and brain and wiles, um, but in interesting ways that you don't that you don't expect. Like the uh, the infamous poison. Who? Where is the poison at? Scene. Right. Well, they have one example. <laughs> And, and Montoya does just these great uh, renditions of revenge and how he's meditating on revenge. And you know he has that that famous line. Um, uh, that word doesn't mean what you think it means. Yes. Which has been used so much. I, I thought it was, uh, after not having seen it for a while, I thought it was like a repeated bit. He only actually says it once. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it does, yeah, but it does stick in your head, doesn't it? I think that's kind of, part of it is because that's kind of the point of the story, is how these fantasy stories aren't really about what they're about. They're not about sieges, and they're not about princesses and princes but they're kind of about say like relating to relating to others and and exposing values of like loyalty or dedication or what have you which works so much better than i think the actual uh fantasy movies of the time work uh the ones with much bigger budgets like ridley scott's legend and uh ron howard's willow two two movies that uh, I don't think are very good. It was it was a period where it was where I uh, where fantasy just wasn't in style and and attempts to make that kind of thing work seriously in a big budget blockbuster way were falling flat. But this you know modest little uh, wink at all of that becomes a cult classic. And I really enjoy the look at the villains. Christopher Guest's. Uh, um, uh, henchman is just uh, is just delightful because he has this wonderful contraption of just uh, where where he sticks in Elways, which is uh, which is awesome for two reasons. Because he first off, it's meant to measure pain and destruction, and it has like a couple markings. If you look closely, which is like one five and then 10,000, <laughs> which as I, I, unfortunately is a little bit of a missed opportunity because they could have put it up to 11,000, <laughs> but it also, um, uh, Carrie Elways is rather so effective at being in this, um, horrible torture device that is like, well, maybe that's why he got first choice to be in the saw movie. <laughs> ah, there you go. <laughs> What could be a more perfect transition than going from Saw to Rob Reiner's romantic comedy? <laughs> yep, so true. Like that comedy, it is 1989's When Harry Met Sally. <coughs> Sally. When Harry Met Sally. Ask the question, can a man and woman attracted to each other ever just be friends or will romance always get in the way? Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan are the titular couple who we follow throughout the years as they put that question to the test. So, you know, romantic comedies, 
often get a bad rap in uh, cinephile circles. They're uh, often stupid, to be frank. The, <laughs> one, of the, one of the features of a lot of romantic comedies are these insane ways to try to get the characters to meet uh, to meet cute, as they say, right. to and then create conflicts as to why they just can't be a couple. And often this cre- leads to such a mangling of plot that it's tempting to to criticize the whole genre for this kind of thing. And we're going to come up, we're going to deal later in the, in, in the podcast with another romantic comedy that falls into every trap that this movie avoids, but I want to give when Harry met Sally credit for doing romantic comedy, right? The everything in the Nora Ephron script is believable. It's organic. It doesn't require insane plot twists. It basically follows these two characters throughout different points of their lives. They meet uh, in college and have this hostile initial reaction to each other. But then we move forward. They don't see each other for years. They get in other relationships. And they don't have some weird reason for meeting. They just run into each other, as, as can happen. And so you have... A believable story. You also have in Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan two leads who actually have chemistry. And that's something that is also pretty rare in the genre and something I appreciated in this film. Mm-hmm. I am, count me in as one of uh, these people who do not like the rom com genre in pretty much its, in, its entirety. And when Harry Met Sally puts me in a weird place, because I do kind of think it is the ultimate example of the romantic comedy. The romantic comedy formula done uh, really nice. But like the formula for, say, black licorice, is it a formula that it really needs to be done well? I'm really happy to see that like over like the last couple years, there have been um, amazing films that explore... Concepts that romantic comedies have also dealt with, including even a comedic way, such as, like, for example, 500 Days of Summer, which mm-hmm. I think is uh, not the best romantic comedy, but one of the best comedies about romance and what, rom- and what romance means. Uh, that being said, I, you definitely should need give credit for these guys, for both Reiner and writer Nora Ephron for, as you say, avoiding so many of these pitfalls that ro- that romantic comedies uh, so often succumb to. Like, key to what you said was how their first relationship is antagonistic, and what I think is a super cool detail is the second time they meet, it couldn't be briefer. Mm-hmm. Just, just they see, uh, they, they meet at an airport where you see uh, Sally's, fi- Sally's fiancé, which is a... a Perfect Carrie Elway's type role, ironically, <laughs> ironically enough. <laughs> and then after just a minute or so, they just go their separate ways. And that does really nicely to go and establish that these are two people moving in their uh, own separate paths. It's a, very, it's a very good touch in a genre which too often establishes at the very beginning that these two people are meeting cute and they're destined to be together. And it's only the most 
obnoxious of contrivances that keep them apart. What Reiner, I think, brings is a very old-fashioned uh, romanticism to it. There's a, a scene that takes place uh, in parks in autumn, and, and it's very lyrical. The use of Harry Connick Jr. on the soundtrack, uh, it had to be you being the most famous example, but just kind of sticking with these old uh, standards kind of tells you that even even while the characters are trying to be hipper than thou and 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 especially Billy Crystal making like kind of he knows all the business there's a romanticism infused in the making of the film itself that helps us buy into the eventual climax a romanticism into building the film itself in in what way like the way it uses like the landscapes or the the, or the different phases of their um, uh... exactly in the in the way New York is shown in the way the music is used uh, just in letting letting the characters have time to exist in in their environment and also the framing device of filming real couples being interviewed uh, this is somewhat reminiscent of uh, Annie Hall which right. uh, is also and really if there's a kind of grandfather to this film it is Annie Hall I think that, that you could describe uh, the style as Woody Allen-esque but, mm. but, but this framing device works because it puts romance in every corner of the film. So we're not dependent just on our two leads. We even have the best friends of the two leads played by Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby yeah. get into a romantic relationship. Yeah. Now, all, all, almost in every other romantic comedy, the best friend role is relegated to people who have no lives of their own are just there to root on our leads as uh, as they go on their quest for true love but they're like you know what we've got our own lives mm it's a fun there's a fun scene when they meet up and have a serious discussion for the first time and then uh, they both talk with their uh, friends about, oh, wait, you think this person likes me and so on. And eventually they decide, no, we got to go in and they run off into a cab right away. <laughs> that, was really, that was really nicely rendered. Um, uh, I have to admit, though, once again, um, the stuff that you respond to a little just eludes me a little too much. Um, because for one thing, I think um, uh, Reiner... As in Stand By Me, he pushes the accelerator on the, you're going to feel this with the music, just a little too much. Like, hmm. by the time I hear Harry Connick's theme for the 15th time, I started renaming it. Instead of it had to be you, it's like, it has to be song. It has to be song. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I kind of appreciate slash hate slash love Bruno Kirby and Carrie Fisher for the exact reason I described earlier about, like, you perfected the formula because those two are the perfect examples of the sidekicks in a romantic comedy. Mm -hmm. The ultimate, the alpha and omega. In other words, like the, the guy is exactly, Bruno Kirby is exactly 15% less attractive than Billy Crystal <laughs> and 50% less interesting. And Carrie Fisher's uh, character is 50% more horny. <laughs> exactly these unseen urges that you don't want the main characters to have in their loving relationship, but these guys are the sidekicks expressly there so they can express that. <laughs> 
That being said, there's something that I think that you should definitely credit Reiner to do from Spinal Tap all the way to Harry Met Sally. And that is the dude really has an attention to detail. From the period details in Stand By Me, from the cars and the streets and so on, to the exact details of, of rock shows gone horribly wrong. <laughs> he is paying attention. It, there, there is all sorts of little facets in here which um, show like people dealing with these romantic situations in interesting and notable ways. Like, I love this particular detail that where Carrie Fisher's is having a conversation with Meg Ryan and she's uh, trying to hook Meg Ryan up with different, different guys. And when he finds out that one person is now married, she takes for the index card and she just folds a corner. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm not throwing this guy away. <laughs> this is the, so right. say for, maybe say for late. <laughs> L- little moments. And, yes. you know, and, and it helps to have someone like Billy Crystal here who is such uh, was such a funny stand-up comedian, but up to this point really has been relegated to kind of uh, supporting roles and little bits uh, here and there, uh, coming into his own as you know a, a believable leading man, as somebody who really brings the comedy to the romantic comedy. Although we have to credit Meg Ryan for the most famous scene in the film, which is uh, sure. the, uh, the fake orgasm in the diner scene. Sure. But that... it also is helped by, by his reactions. Yes. Where he's just, where he has, mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. How he's surprised at first. Yeah. And he's like, okay, we're going to go to office. <laughs> we're going to see how I have to have this play out. And then, of course, the the punchline at the end with the "I'll have what she's having." Per, yeah. per, perfect scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you got to give it credit for being I- iconic. Right, and even even though the New Year's uh, Eve reunion at the end is predictable, is kind of standard romantic comedy stuff. In this case, I feel it's earned. I was moved by it. It worked for me. And it's not because of the scene itself, but because everything else made that believable. Mm. Well, it even includes that it is the running to the airport scene with no airport. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, maybe maybe Bill, uh, Billy Crystal, I completely agree with you. He he's really does a nice acting job in here. And it requires his his character to be like forlorn at points mm-hmm. and, and emotionally devastated at other points and, and unlikable in certain scenes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he, del- and he delivers wonderfully like, um, uh, Meg Ryan, by way of comparison, she is a downright, a fountain of just quirky cuteness. Right. And, and it really does take the two actors to have the chemistry. It doesn't work only with one. I, you know, the uh, comparison point for this movie for a lot of people, I think, is Sleepless in Seattle, which yeah. uh, keeps its leads apart for almost the entirety of the movie. So you never really get a chance to explore right. that chemistry. And Meg Ryan kind of went on to a, 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 a romantic comedy career and never really got it this right again. Mm, interesting. So this is the, uh, this is peak Brian for you. Well, yeah, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a very, yeah. um, uh, very limited, uh, trans, uh, right. peak transversal, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And it does conclude with those guys on the confessional couch. <laughs> 
which again is now proved to be a staple of much, um, uh, not just single camera sitcoms, but like reality shows as well. Mm-hmm. You just now you just go make your um, confessions right to the camera. Which, by the way, I'm just going to point out that like I I look at these comedies today of of Modern Family and so on, and I just wonder if like you know people watching them ten years <laughs> from now are not going to just think that everybody was crazy because they'd go look at these guys and go. Who the hell are you talking to? <laughs> Wait, did someone, some camera guys in your house while you just tell them the most <laughs> intimate details? <laughs> I mean, I kind of am scared that we might actually live in a world where that is a natural thing that happens. You just tell Alexa your feelings or something. <laughs> I'm giving you Well, speaking of being scared, uh, Rob Reiner uh, does possibly one of the least expected things that the director of When Harry Met Sally could do. The least wanted romantic pair in history. Exactly. (laughs) Which is make a horror film. Uh, He returns to Stephen King territory, but this time in the author's more traditional genre, 1990s Misery stars James Kahn playing uh, famous novelist Paul Sheldon, who wants to move beyond his successful but limiting series of misery romance novels. But a car accident sends him uh, wounded and immobile into the home of his number one fan, Annie Wilkes, played by Kathy Bates, who has other ideas about Paul's career path. Yes, Paul's career path, who, like his driving path, has been led astray. (laughs) Um, Maybe Rob Reiner's finest achievement as a director, bear with me here, is making James Caan believable as a guy who writes romance novels. (laughs) Does anything about Sonny from The Godfather or or The Thief from Thief lead you to think of him writing about a busty uh, swashbuckling pirate story, for example. It, it, it really is brilliant <laughs> casting because you have a guy who has to spend almost the entire movie in a vulnerable position where he cannot defend himself, where he is victimized. And there's so many obvious ways to go with that. But instead, to go with a movie tough guy brings a different element to that. And, of course, Kathy Bates, who won an Oscar for her portrayal here, I think is well-deserved. She takes the monster role and gives it levels that are surprising, that are interesting, that put this so above the level it could have been at. Her performance is very nuanced. Uh, Some of it is stuff directly from the book, like the character's uh, occasional uh, retreat into kind of uh, nursery rhyme talk. Mm -hmm. But most of it is through how she is completely selling this idea that she buys into the reality of his romance novels and and is absolutely adamant that when they go in the direction that she finds offensive, that she is not only upset, but homicidally upset. This is really interesting, and I think might be another thing to put a feather in Reiner's cap, because 
while Kathy Bates has shown that she's done really great roles, I don't think she's ever really shined as brightly as Annie Wilkes in Misery. It's stunning what she has to, what she does in this film. Well, she was known more as a stage actress at, at this time in her career, so it might be that her more acclaimed work was on stage. She's been very good, I think, in other films like uh, Fried Green Tomatoes. But, no, no, she does something very special here, which is so essential because if you don't believe... It's a two-hander. If you don't believe both these characters, it's not going to work. So, uh, again, Rob Reiner has surrounded himself with the best. William Goldman is back doing the adaptation. Just as as I mentioned in uh, Stand By Me, I, I also have had the chance to read Misery. And, yeah, I think he, Rob Reiner, more than a lot of directors just knows how to capture Stephen King's vibe here in a completely different way than he did in Stand By Me. Uh, You even have a wonderful uh, supporting performance by Richard Farnsworth as the crusty old sheriff who's uh, in his down-home way going to, you know, find out what's going on with this uh, missing writer in the snow. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in a a very fun touch, like, you get the sight of this guy who should have been on the range for the last 40 years. He's sitting in bed reading a uh, torrid romance Right. (laughs) And that actually hints to something that, that at least for me, is something where Ryder actually may have enhanced on the book. From what I remember of the book, it was a, more of a straight-up horror uh, story as you just feel how trapped this main character is and as he gets more and more like mutilated and you just wonder how he'll get out of his increasingly limited predicament. Mm-hmm. But in the movie and in the two performances... Reiner manages to both enhance the suspense and the thrills and the horror, but also puts place up the comedy and absurdity as well. Right. I think that's a lot to do with Kathy Bates's performance because the other way to play this is as nothing but a threat, just as something, you know, as, as a geek show. And she doesn't do that. She's got the humanity in her character, which also means she has humor in her character. Yeah, and there's just some moments where she's so legitimately ecstatic uh, about what she's reading in her dream novel come true that she's literally skipping around and spinning around like a little girl. And mm-hmm. at that moment, you're just you're just like, wow, wow, she's really by, she's really out into it. Instead of going, oh my god, this is an opportunity to get away or something like that, you're just like marveling at her. Right, and she has this pet pig called Misery too. <laughs> yes, yeah, the, the pigs, uh, pigs put to like really uh, nice use in a couple <laughs> scenes. Yeah, but and, but you you mentioned suspense, and I, uh, this is a. Uh, a side we haven't seen from Rob Reiner in his genre hopping yet. But those scenes where uh, Paul Sheldon is uh, sneaking out of the room and has to crawl around and get to the phone before she gets back, they are done so claustrophobically. The horror elements are there, and this works in the horror genre as well as beyond the horror genre. Yeah, very, very nicely. This may be, to me, like I think Reiner's best 
directorial achievement in terms of just what we usually think of direction in terms of like pointing the camera, mm -hmm. what part of the frame to shoot. Like he keeps making those two rooms, uh, the main two rooms, interesting to look at. He keeps making us uh, putting on edge when we need to. He keeps pointing out the absurdity of a situation exactly in the right way when we need to. Like one key moment that like I really was impressed me was the infamous like uh, ankle breaking scene just done perfectly well right. and just hinting at what she's doing, hinting at what she's doing, then giving the briefest mentions of his, uh, of what happens to his, one of his ankles. But then like, not like 30 or 40 seconds later, they just show his uh, male bandaged uh, uh, feet as he's looking out the window and he just like this real sour expression of James Connors. He gives her the finger. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> And you look at that scene and you just laugh, despite the fact that you were just in a horrific place just a moment before. I mean, that's a Tarantino-like level of whiplash. <laughs> and that's really, really hard to do. And the way a certain character gets dispatched is also just comes at you very nicely by mm. surprise. As does the final battle, where someone who's like, you've felt for her, both her... Um, uh, intense like desires for uh, for having her story become having her favorite misery story be complete and her enthusiasm, but she can turn full score full bore monster at uh, at the end. Right. <laughs> yeah, and so like yeah, and he and so Reiner puts that together in terms of the sus the, the suspense and also I in terms of enhancing the actors. Like you had said that like Meg Ryan was. Never better than as Sally and when Harry met Sally. And I kind of think that not only this is Kathy Bates's best film role, but it might be Khan's as well. Like, because he has to like, because at different points, just, just like the tone of the story in general, he has to be, um, you both have to buy into his quest to just escape. Mm -hmm. But then also he acts in many cases as a wry straight man just trying to react to the crazy things that Annie Wilkes is doing for him and at him. Yeah, he plays notes he's not known for. That's right. Um, there's something that, that Reiner saw in Khan that he's normally known for, and uh, it's you know reverse typecasting. It's taking this this guy uh, into territory we haven't seen him before, and it's it's exciting acting to watch. Khan delivers so well up until that final image when you have that look on his face. And for me, it just can't help but harken back to reflect on both like the Princess Bride's take on like stories versus reality and the expression of Richard Dreyfus as he's typing away on his ancient uh, uh, green terminal at the end of Stand By Me. You look at the expression on Khan's face and you see going through the astonishment of, boy, the stuff that I had to get to through to get this book out there. <laughs> so would you say maybe uh, whimsy and reminiscing might be kind of a constant in the Reiner output that, that could make the argument that he is an auteur director? I think at least it's something that's showing up so far, yeah. You could even say that the people on the couch in When Harry Met Sally are also telling and interpreting their stories and reminiscing themselves. But yes, this also sense of looking back and the stories we tell to look at our past. 
is um something that might be kind of on his mind. So I guess we we will see if that continues into the uh, military courtroom drama in Reiner's next film. Up there on the platform, he's speaking to the people. The people are responding with clapping and a cheering, but the meaning of the message not revealed to those assembled. They're taken for a ride, taken in his stride. That would be 1992's A Few Good Men, based on the Aaron Sorkin play of the same name. This takes us to a military trial of two Marines accused of hazing another Marine to death at the Guantanamo Bay Naval Base. Uh, Marine culture is explored when Tom Cruise's hotshot lawyer goes head-to-head with the powerful and domineering Colonel Nathan R. Jessup, played by Jack Nicholson. You know, as part of uh, preparing for this podcast, I, I watched a bunch of YouTube reviews uh, of this film, okay. and I was very amused at how many reviewers felt the need to recite in full Nicholson's You Can't Handle the Truth speech. Uh-huh. I do not feel that need, but I thought it was interesting that that, that, that speech is such a touchstone in, in popular culture that people have put it to memory. Yeah, I, it's something that I think is a constant in the work of Aaron Sarkin. It's something a lot of people like, and it is a single thing I can't stand about that guy. Which is? Aaron Sorkin does thoughtful uh, scripts involved. Uh, thoughtful concepts, some really interesting takes on structure, like his uh, screenplay for the Steve Jobs movie directed by Danny Boyle mm-hmm. was really, really interesting. But he does one particular thing that just gets me on my nerves. And that thing is the speechifying. The speechifying comes across to me as just has this whiff of like desperation akin to a very famous episode of Seinfeld where George Costanza hears some gag set at his expense and then later he thinks up I've just been to the jerk store and they've been out of you and he has (laughs) such a great comeback but it's too late and he spends the rest of the episode trying to go and like meet up with that guy just so he can tell him that one comeback okay that to me is Sorkin's entire career quirk okay like much like how when alfred hitchcock as a little kid got put into jail and then he's been paranoid about the cops and about innocent people wrongly accused ever since i always feel when aaron sarkin gives a speech is that he's like constancing it up (laughs) like he is he's like i'm gonna show you i'm gonna have the most the wittiest comeback the grandest speech everyone's going to have a five minute sequence where they say the most perfect thing that anyone has ever said at that moment it has this whiff of desperation to me that just makes me want to roll my eyes and go come on man well, I, I'm sure well after we're done recording here, I'll be able to think of a good comeback to that. But uh, <laughs> no, no, I'll, 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 I'll tell you this. Um, I love the speechifying. I love the Sorkin style uh, in the same way that I really love writers 
who have their own voice. Writers like Quentin Tarantino, like David Mamet, whose cadence, whose delivery of words might not be realistic. I mean, that's one thing you sacrifice with a writer that distinctive is a degree of realism. But, you know, we don't always go to movies for realism. So to have a writer able to to turn wor- words into modern poetry, even if they include a lot of four-letter words and whatnot, mm-hmm. is very valuable. And, and I think Aaron Sorkin is one of the best at that. But I have to say, I don't think this uh, film, A Few Good Men, is one of the best examples of Aaron Sorkin's writing. Yeah. It's very early in his career, and he hasn't really developed the full level of the cadence that he would later, and I'll go into a little more detail on that in the second Sorkin film we discuss. But even though we may not be at peak Sorkin, I still think... It's solid here in most cases. I do have an issue plot-wise with the film that actually just constantly distracts me and um, makes me think a little less of the film. We we, we go into spoiler territory here, but if you've already heard the you-can't-handle-the-truth speech, you kind of already know where this is going, which is that Nicholson's Colonel Jessup, who has been set up as this incredibly high-level, competent, brilliant military man. Yes, a man with a temper. Yes, a man who is uh, overly passionate. But at the same time, he's the, right, he's the right hand to a president. He has, he, if, if he's not, he's only in a few scenes here, and when he's not on screen, he's being talked about. So this larger-than-life character has, has been developed and then when it comes time for his moment on the stand, where in order to save his own career reputation and not go to jail, all he's got to do is deny the crime he's been <laughs> accused of, yet he just admits it. He follows the speech by saying, yes, I ordered the hazing, I ordered the code red. And I didn't believe that moment. Okay. And that kind of takes me out of the cult of this movie, which I'm kind of sad about because I I really enjoy so much of this movie. But that that one moment kind of takes me out of it. Okay. Um, You you mentioned a whole lot of things that would be really, really fun to get get into on here. And I'm going to try to um, get those in roughly the same order. To your first point about like stylized language, I'm not against stylized language per se, and 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 certain screenwriters and writers in general have just a, like James Elroy would be one of my favorites mm-hmm. is so good at putting in a world just through language. But for me, on that particular detail on Sorkin, much like how I kind of can't stand much uh, many Mike Myers movies because I always feel that he's taking a step back when he makes a joke to just wave his arms and point in the direction going, huh? Huh? Isn't that funny? Huh? That is a sense that I always feel Mm. about these, about these speeches. And it actually does relate to what you talked about in your criticism of a Mr. Colonel Nathan R. Jessup, a guy who 
as uh, the comic Mike Birbiglia had said when he was uh, talking about an awkward conversation, he said, what I should have said was nothing. (laughs) (laughs) But if you're going to say that, you look at how infamous that speech is, but no colonel would start by saying this long-winded way and saying, either way, I don't give a good goddamn what you think you're entitled to. That's kind of what you would start with, because that's the most important thing that Colonel would want to impose on um, uh, Tom Cruise's lawyer character. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like, oh, you think I'm entitled to this? You are not. Now I will explain why. Not go on a long-winded, like, there are walls, and people on the walls have guns, etc., etc., and you get some Sorkin-esque guberiousness until he gets to that what he really meant to say in the first place. And he does this over and over in Flew Good Men, like when his um, uh, Kevin Pollock's character goes, and goes on this long-winded description to just say, uh, you know, that guy I've been talking to with no reference was your father, um, uh, and you're a better guy than he ever was. Which is like, first off, you could have said that first. Secondly, wouldn't you have known what his father's like? <laughs> <laughs> so so um, I do agree with you that a person in his position wouldn't say that, but this is a case where I think one scene, that one moment, e- eclipses the rest of the movie. Because does anybody even remember JT Walsh is in the movie? They should, because <laughs> he's pretty good. At- he is really good. He actually does. He actually does one of the better performances, better than yeah. Moore and Pollock for certain, um, and better than Tom Cruise, I would say. Because in his limited screen time, you really feel the pathos of his situation. Right. And J.T. Walsh is a, uh, what was a, a really reliable character actor who almost always played uh, villains or skeevy characters of, of some kind. And, you know, he should be getting more yeah. credit where credit is due. Yeah, he I was actually, the previous millennium's uh, William Finkster. Right, right. <laughs> I actually like... Uh, just about all the performances in the movie, uh, mostly because it's not just well cast, it's well typecast. <laughs> and everyone, except Demi Moore, who, who I want to give extra credit to, everyone is kind of playing a, a version of themselves. I mean, this Tom Cruise character right. is as Tom Cruisey as Tom Cruise could be. Yes. It's got, uh, it, it's got all the elements uh, of his performances of this period, but, you know, in a movie like Cocktail or Days of Thunder, I think it's to the service of a way better film. So he's better in that case. Kevin Bacon, Kiefer Sutherland are playing just roles that they look perfect for. Yep. Now, the interesting wild card here is Demi Moore hmm. because she is almost exclusively known for playing roles that uh, rely on her beauty and her her sexuality. And here, that is almost entirely taken out of of the picture. You expect in a conventional movie for a relationship to form between uh, Moore's character and Cruz's character. It doesn't happen. And that leads to just one other kind of awkward bit in this is they, they, I think they realized there was something weird about having the leading men and lead, the leading lady in the film and there being no romantic chemistry. So they did include a date over some lobster, but it's a date that goes nowhere story-wise. Hmm. That's a really, really interesting point. I mean, think of that in the context that the movie's called A Few Good Men. It, of all things, and bear with me a bit, kind of reminds me a little bit of some of the angles going under the surface of a recent film, uh, Three Billboards Outside 
Ebbing's Missouri. Because let's if you look at like the title A Few Good Men, mm-hmm. and then consi- there's a really interesting part, a very interesting thing that happens in the middle of Jack Nicholson's big tirade. He says, Who's gonna defend this country? You? And he goes, You, Weinberg. That's Kevin Pollock's character. But the sheer venom that he involves on there makes me highlight the fact that, like, who, who does Tom Cruise have at his back? It's a woman mm-hmm. and then a Jewish person. Right. And, and then who's the judge in the case is, uh, is an African-American who also has some interesting conflagration to say, hey, you should listen uh, to tell Nicholson, you should go and uh, follow my order because I believe I earned that. Mm-hmm. So there is some nice subtext going on. In that, in, the, in that way, right? To me, it kind of ties in in a fun way that about how uh, to show how Tom Cruise's character is this um, uh, child man who hasn't grown up yet. They do this incredibly cheap shorthand by having him play softball and, um, and just focus in on that. It, looking at it now, it just kind of reminds me of how... Um, uh, uh, unfortunately, of how Tommy Wiseau uses uh, sports to show how guys interact <laughs> in the room. And, of course, actually harkens back to how lovingly um, playing volleyball is depicted, in both senses of the word, in Top Gun. <laughs> and this leads me to just get a quick tangent to point out something about Tom Cruise that I think you all should know. And that Tom Cruise has the greatest quirk of trivia of any movie star in Hollywood history. Nobody else has a quirk this extensive as Tom Cruise. And it's this. When you look at the list of Tom Cruise movies, no one else has a list where the gay pornographic parody movie of the movie title is exactly the same as the original movie title. Like what is the gay porn version of a few good men? It's a few good men. (laughs) What's the gay porn version of The Firm? It's The Firm. <laughs> Risky Business, Taps, Cocktail, come on. And need I even bring up Jack Reacher? It's actually, go through his filmography. It's quite amazing. Well, uh, g- given time to uh, come up with a Sorkin-esque uh, reaction to that, I don't <laughs> think I could, no matter how much time I was given, so we will move on to our next uh, point. <laughs> okay, well, there's some even more stuff going on in that final trial confrontation, actually, because it brings up something that it has touched on in... Reiner's work earlier so far, which is missing fatherhood. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Cruise's character obviously has uh, trouble living in the shadow of his uh, his dad's uh, great career. But then the characters in Stand By Me all have different issues with uh, dealing with their particular fathers. Yeah, that is a really good point because... It only becomes more pronounced as we we move on to uh, future uh, Reiner films. You know, as we started out by mentioning uh, Rob Reiner and a very famous father, Carl Reiner, and right, they right. had a famously 
difficult relationship. Is that, uh, is that right? Yes, he's, <laughs> he's talked about it in interviews. And I think we see, even though you know the, this element comes from a Sorkin script, if you take enough Reiner films, uh, as we did, and watch them in a row, the uh, father issues become a, a repeating motif. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, when you get that speech and the infamous lines of, I want the truth... You can't handle the truth. Turns out there might be a little bit more going on than simply the details of who instituted that code red. Now, the search for missing fathers is definitely a concern in his next film, the infamous North in 1994. No matter time, no place They don't understand that us kids are going to make some mistakes So to you other kids all across the land There's no need to argue, parents just don't understand Yes, this is the story of a perfect young boy Also named North played by Elijah Wood, who seeks a divorce from his parents, who are played by uh, Seinfeld's Jason Alexander and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. With Bruce Willis in a bunny suit as his conscience, North travels the world in search of the perfect parents. So I, I got to ask, Brad, did you hate, 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 hate this movie? Or merely hate, hate, hate it? I'm going to take out one hate. Okay. Because this is a terrible film, but <laughs> but I have to give it some credit for being terrible in its own way and not just derivatively terrible like so many of the worst Hollywood product is. But we should explain what we're referencing here, which is one of Roger Ebert's most famous reviews. He gave, he gave North zero stars and uh, in his reviews said, I hate, 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 hated this movie, which also led to the title of a compilation book he put together of movies uh, he also equally hated. Uh, he, he, he's not wrong. <laughs> there are so many problems with North, starting with the conceit itself. It's a dumb plot. <laughs> the idea, the, this idea of divorcing your parents is not a thing, and the film doesn't set up any legitimate alternate reality where this is believable as a thing. It's trying to go for comedy and failing at every turn, mostly because the comedic tone is so inconsistent. There's a lot of old style Borscht Belt humor here. And uh, I can only imagine that, that uh, again, bringing Carl Reiner back into the mix. Carl Reiner was famous uh, for working with uh, Mel Brooks as well as a lot of other um, uh, Jewish comedians who had a particular old timey style of humor. You know, in Mel Brooks's best films, th that style works wonderfully. But we don't have that level of writing here, so we have 
really awkward scenes where, you know, Henny Youngman-esque puns yep. are just thrown in there with no personality whatsoever. But uh, what do you think of it? I don't <laughs> well, for a terrible movie, it's not that bad. Um, yeah. uh, ironically, it's uh, one problem is not that it lacks direction. It's very much doing what it does from the beginning up until a really horrible twist at, up to the very end. But what is, I think what is doing is at cross purposes because the plot is meant to, I think, evoke some really kind of dark attempted dreams or wishes that children might have but are rarely explored. Like, I kind of think a film that does that a little more successfully is The Missing Parents in a Time Bandits. Yes. And the stuff that you see in the movie, while Gilliam is not Gilliam-esque in Gil Terry Gilliam's style, I think it's attempting to make things be strange in an overdone manner, in a more candy-coated manner, in a more show-off manner. In fact, there's even a sequence which devolves into a straight-up musical number. Ironically, not just harken back maybe to some of the early Hollywood films that had no compunctions about like going really big and just mm -hmm. throwing in elaborate production numbers or very weird sequences uh, for the sake of just promoting the theme, which is like this really weird idea of like if a kid tries to pick his parents, what is he going to, what the journey is he going to take? Right. And that journey involves a lot of cameos. So you have uh, Dan Aykroyd and Reba McIntyre as the Texas uh, potential parents. You right. have uh, John Ritter as the Middle America perfect dad. You have Kathy Bates as one of the Eskimo parents. Yep. You have just all these people who, who are utilized in not just ways that don't work, but ways that are absolutely strange. Like, none of these cameos play to anyone's strength. Right? That's that's so true. Um, Kathy Bates fails to transcend as an Eskimo with Abe Vigoda for an Eskimo grandfather, for example. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, uh, while Reba McIntyre uh, does an interesting uh, um, lady from Texas, Aykroyd is... Um, more believable as a as the uh, main bad guy from Nothing But Trouble than he is Ooh. doing whatever the heck he's doing <laughs> here. The thing that most kind of ruins that tone is what you touched on is that the actual humor of the details is the lamest, most facile, obvious thing you get from a third string comic headlining the Branson, Missouri circuit. Just like, like imagine the cheapest, most lamest thing you can say about Eskimos, people from Texas, um, uh, and so on. And this movie will have it for you. So I, I will bring up what might be the worst joke in the film, which is, uh, when he's with his potential Hawaiian parents yeah. and they explained to him that he would want to live in Hawaii because there are only uh, limited numbers of letters in their alphabet and he'd get all A's on his grades because there's no letter B, C, D, or F. Yeah. Yeah. 
Let we're gonna just give like a couple of seconds to let you guys soak in on the glory of that joke. Right, that's the level of of the humor we're dealing with here. <laughs> yeah, it's mortifying to just see these just jokes that look like they're like the age of the two thousand year old man just being put uh, put on this what looks to be some sort of dark and subversive tale. It like it wants to be one thing. But then the me- the way the words it uses to get there are from a totally different time and completely inappropriate. Right, this especially is- since this is all supposed to be in the uh, you know this is revealed to be an all a dream movie. Right, and Bruce Willis keeps showing up as uh, his conscious in different guises in the different environments he's in. And he's doing a great job looking vaguely disinterested in every single one of them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, um, and then we have an equally ridiculous subplot where this other kid decides to utilize North's publicly seeking new parents as a way to get every other kid in the world to rebel against their parents. And they, they try to turn him into this uh, nine-year-old maniacal supervillain, which could not work less well. Rob Reiner made a big mistake trying to put the shoulders of supervillainy on this poor kid who does an Anakin Skywalker level of annoyance from his very first appearance and also tying into the whole anachronism thing. He actually runs the student newspaper, but he's dressed like famed 1940s gossip, Walter Winchell. We're on a kid's movie that's referencing some 60 year old uh, news gossip. What is going on here? Right. It's, it's this complete disconnect. I think what it wanted to be, was the kind of movie the Hudsucker Proxy ended up being. Mm, And the Hudsucker Proxy, which was actually also pretty well-dissed at the time, has since recovered a a little better reputation and and I think is a pretty good Coen Brothers movie, not not one of their best. But it also has, the in that movie, it has this Capra-esque meets modern comedy tone. This movie seems to be trying for that same netherworld between generations. And because it doesn't have the writing or even the directorial skills that that, that Reiner has shown flourishing in so many of his earlier films seem gone here, this generational gap cannot be bridged in this film. And and the result is every few minutes you're going, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Yep. I wouldn't say this is the worst movie ever made. It might not even be the worst movie Rob Reiner ever made. <laughs> right. But you do get the sense of what Roger Ebert put in like a sentence near the end of his epic uh, review Trashing North. I don't know who the audience for this movie is. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the ultimate statement on here of what North is all about. <laughs> so if we opened uh, our discussion of Rob Reiner with the, the question of what the hell happened, how did this director who had made so many well-loved films deteriorate, it's tempting to maybe say North is mm-hmm. the reason. But it, it doesn't quite work because... Rob Reiner's next film, 
I think is a return to form and another one of his great movies. Everybody wants to be naked and famous. Everybody wants to be just like me. I'm naked. And Well, it's certainly his next one in 1995's The American President. In this movie, Michael Douglas is President Andrew Shepard and surrounded by his loyal and capable staff, including Martin Sheen <laughs> and Michael J. Fox, Shepard's job of leading the free world becomes more complicated when he falls in love with powerhouse lobbyist Sidney Ellen Wade, played by Annette Benning. Well, now we have reached full Sorkin. If there's anything about A Few Good Men that kind of hinted at the style uh, those of his fans would come to love and some of us who are not would uh, right. come to despise, uh, it's all in full flower here. In fact, uh, uh, if any anyone who has seen uh, The West Wing, uh, which will find the American president very familiar because... It is the basis for The West Wing. That uh, series came about after the success of this movie. And Martin Sheen being chief of staff to uh, Michael Douglas's president here. He was taking would, notes. Uh, yes, would uh, would go on to be president himself. I happen to just to show my, my own friends. I love The West Wing. It's actually one of my all-time uh, favorite uh, TV shows. So I am all on board with what's going on here in The American President. Mm, whereas I find West Wing is a democratic pornography <laughs> through and through and through. Like you could not uh, yourself fall asleep with greater wish fulfillment of what the ideal democratic president would do or say in any situation more than, more than in that movie. And I have to say, you want to say peak Sorkin for however effective misery is nothing of watching Rob Reiner's filmography including anything of North, filled me with such gut-wrenching horror <laughs> as the opening segment of The American President as it's a gigantic, long walk and talk that just keeps going and going and going. And I was racked in sweat-filled fear that this is going to be some Birdman-level Aaron Sorkin experiment <laughs> of, the, of how the White House is this never-ending labyrinth hallway where he'll be saying witty things and take papers from some people and deliver papers to other people. Sorkin's, <sighs> Sorkin's, Sorkin's going to have his walk and talk. You cannot take away the walk and talk. D to be fair... The, <laughs> He doesn't. He, he settles down. He doesn't Thank use it throughout. God. But yes, yes, that is at the beginning. <laughs> you know, th this is a movie. Um, I actually like everything that you don't like about that kind of situation because we have lived through real life presidents. Why don't we just through film say, well, what would happen if a president said exactly what they felt? without the regards to the real <laughs> politic of the result. Yeah. What would happen? And, the, and, and that's I actually kind do, of... I do actually want to point out, I do enjoy a movie that does exactly what you say, mm -hmm. um, uh, Warren Beatty's Bullworth. Oh, my think, God. But, and you're not a fan, right? <laughs> I, I despise that film. I, Isn't that I think that is the one where your democratic porn is more... Uh, interesting. And it, this, by the way, that might be a, a function of my generally disliking Warren Beatty as an actor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess part of the thing is that, I, for my perspective, I think it's because I like how Bullworth is messy 
and clumsy and silly at times, whereas the American president, in every sense, good and sort of, to me, bad, it's polished. Mm -hmm. Like, it looks really great. My, Michael Douglas casts a magnificent swath as the as a as a as a presidential figure, uh, one that would be worthy um, amongst the list of um, uh, of presidential portraits. He's so greatly idealized on it. His staff are just the daffy dash nation of eager go getters who want uh, who want uh, uh, the president and the administration to succeed, and um, and the whole depiction of the Oval Office is. Lovingly presented as the place where these magnificently serious deals are made and complicated concepts are brought up and discussed. Well, well, Michael Douglas, interestingly enough, was not the original choice for the role. Originally, uh, they had wanted Robert Redford to play the president, oh, wow. and uh, that okay. fell through, and uh, Michael Douglas became the replacement. But I, I, I've got to tell you, I have absolutely no complaints, because not only does he create a believable presidential character, but having seen a lot of Michael Douglas movies, he really creates a different persona than we're generally used to Michael Douglas in. He's got a lot, and, and he's a lot of it's his vulnerability. Yes. It's so tempting to portray a president always having it together. Yeah. Or if you're going to go the other way, having one who, you know, is just a wreck or something. But, right. But Michael Douglas finds a wonderful balance between constantly keeping up the presidential demeanor and showing his vulnerability as a person, which leads to, I think, the success of the love story element. Yes, and I think it also leads to the success of the um, political discussion elements. The like, There's a lot of long-winded discursions and so on, and I kind of don't think that long-winded discursions are Redford's thing. Right. <laughs> Redford is good at playing... Guys who are uh, skating because of their amazingly good looks and charisma and who are just leads into confusing places. <laughs> He's actually, I think, closer to Beatty than, than, um, uh, than he is to um, Michael Douglas. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Michael Douglas is, I th think he's stretching quite a decent bit and to cover a lot of a lot of ground, both like an articulate guy and a guy who's confident at times, but then also out of his depth at times, like when how, how and juggling all these effective, all these different roles, like as a leader, as a father, uh, as a widower, and as a love interest to um, uh, Annette Benning. Right, which is really could be a troublesome plot point. How do you believably portray a president dating? It's really new territory as, as far as anything I've seen. And I could imagine it going wrong in a lot of ways, but it, it doesn't do that here. Annette Benning, who is not one of my favorite actresses, I really like her in American Beauty, but in, in not much else, um, I think brings to her role a groundedness and a toughness that okay. is uh, that, and, and like we were talking about with Harry and Sally, a chemistry with Michael Douglas. So when you have the scenes where he has to break off their date because to do presidential stuff, she's not stupid. She gets it. See, they're they're not going to have silly misunderstandings here. They both understand 
what it means that the man is president of the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a fundamental intelligence in almost every character uh, that is might might appear like wishful fulfillment, but it's also, I guess, enchanting in that sim- for a similar reason. Just to say, like these are people who are taking these positions and uh, and their situation seriously. And the film does a really nice job of both exploring that and actually exploring the grittier details of uh, pa- having legislation passed and lobbying and convincing uh, Congress people to um, uh, uh, to vote this way or that. And and I think a fair amount of nice suspense is mined out of uh, numbers being ripped off a uh, uh, off a board. Total right. board for you example. have uh, Richard Dreyfus as the. Uh, Republican senator who's going to run for president against Michael Douglas's character. Mm-hmm. And he even manages to bring in one of his uh, maniacal Richard Dreyfus laughs. <laughs> I guess the events that he went through in Stand By Me must have uh, messed him up really bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe all those leeches is what got his opinion on welfare, for example. <laughs> Dreyfus is really great as the hissable villain in this movie. You, you don't. I don't even know if you even have a policy position in there. It's just the way he talks and the way he um, uh, sneers with contempt about uh, Michael Douglas's character make you really just want to boo and throw nearest tomato at him. You you even end up uh, in a smoke-filled room that might not even have any smoke in it, but it's still (laughs) that's what it conveys. And the movie ends probably with an example of what you were talking about uh, that you either love or hate about Sorkin, which is uh, an inspirational speech given to the uh, to the press corps. The two policies that the movie deals with is uh, gun control and environmental issues, and gives the what what we'll see often again in the West Wing, where the president stops the bullshit tells it like it is Mm -hmm. and you know we did we're not going to see it in real life so my 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 opinion is let's enjoy it here yeah um to be to do um right by sorkin's script um reiner has the camera slowly zoom in uh on michael douglas's uh president character as he's uh uh, starts addressing face forward into the camera and all the press people and ostensibly which is just a press briefing where you're not supposed to make this ma- gigantic um, speech. It all falls away. So he addresses us to say about the magnificent decision he is going to make. And uh, the camera is close up on his face so you don't see him ascend into heaven <laughs> as a process of this. <laughs> but you know what? Any kind, of nobil- any kind of nobility in this film is more than offset by watching scenes where the president can't figure out how to buy flowers for his girlfriend. <laughs> that is a, yeah, a cute, that is a very cute contrast. The, uh, the, like, the president doesn't have any cash on him. Right. How does a pre- how does a president do the normal like a normal kind of things you want for a romance? Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, though, I do kind of agree with you in this sense. You're actually grafting two totally different kind of things: the the grand statesman type of story with the with a romance story, and the juggling works. The tone thing uh, for uh, for the most part works uh, works quite well in this movie. And then Rob Reiner never made another film again. Oh, whew. That that that's that as long as we're talking fantasy, yes, that's <laughs> what I wish 
because... He flew away as, and then uh, died coming to his whole planet. <laughs> as much as I have liked to love every non-North movie we've discussed so far, folks, it goes downhill real quick now. I have to admit, we, we didn't get a chance to see every subsequent uh, Rob Reiner film. I will say that the ones we haven't seen have not been well-reviewed. So... Uh, unfortunately, I mean, if, if, if anybody out there kind of has an exception, I'd love to hear about it, but, uh, we're, we're heading into rough waters now. Right. If you guys want to go and suggest the, uh, Kate Hudson romantic comedy of his, we'll give it a shot. Right. <laughs> we shall overcome. So, so next we have, in 1996, Ghosts of Mississippi. Uh, this tells the true story of the murder of civil rights leader Medgar Evers and the 30-year struggle to bring his killer to justice. Alec Baldwin is the idealistic attorney heading up the case. Whoopi Goldberg is Evers' widow, and James Woods plays the racist assassin Byron Dela Beckwith. This is a film that has only the best of intentions. But despite these good intentions, this film fails on a filmmaking level. <laughs> it portrays not just uh, the courtroom drama, but also some of the events at the time, but portrays them so in a dull way, which is very strange when you consider how dynamic the courtroom scenes in uh, A Few Good Men are, but they're drab here. They they don't resonate, even though the subject matter is much more real and is something that we should be able to get more passionate about. Another problem, I think, is the casting here. Alec Baldwin has a number of tools that he can go to as an actor. Some would argue he's quite the tool himself. <laughs> this has been said. He tends to play, uh, until his uh, switch to comedy, which was to his benefit, he tended to play characters a little bit more like Tom Cruise in, in, in If You Could Bet, you know, the slick yep. kind of thing. But here he's this naive, young, innocent lawyer who's wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, uh, wanting to make a difference. And Alec Baldwin cannot pull these notes off. Now, Whoopi Goldberg, I guess, is okay. She needs to project nobility, and she does project that, but, but that's all she projects. We never see Medgar Evers' widow as anything more than a symbol of pursuing justice for her husband, which is the most important note, and she does hit it. But if, uh, if, if this were a more ambitious and better film, I think her character would have been fleshed out more. Mm -hmm. Then you have James Woods. Now, I've seen some footage 
of uh, the real life uh, Dila Beckwith, uh-huh. who is an ornery character. Uh, there's no guessing in the movie as to whether he was the assassin. He was the assassin. Okay. Well, Woods can do ornery. Uh, and Woods can do ornery, and Woods has done plenty of great villains. And I understand seeing the real guy, why he gave in to this temptation, but it's the wrong move to play him like Yosemite Sam. Whoa. It, he ju- he's in old age makeup for most of it. He is going bigger than big in every single scene, sneering and growling and doing everything but spitting up. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's the villain. We should hate him. But this should be a better movie than to give us a cartoon villain. Okay, so he's presented as kind of an ogre like while he while he's really great at playing villains, he's re, uh, he delivers a level of over intellectual neuroticism to him. He's, his characters are known for their basic antsiness about their situation, and it doesn't sound like it's coming across here. It, not at all. And it also leads me to ask, how do you think this falls short of, say, Mississippi Burning, which I remember, recall you being quite a fan of, yes. and also deals with. Uh, a look at a, um, I would say, kind of idealized look at a historical event. Well, uh, pure filmmaking. I mean, for me, Mississippi Burning brought um, real uh, real life tragedy to the movie screen with an urgency, a tragedy, and a vividness that is completely lacking here. You watch Mississippi Burning with horror at what you see happening uh, to the characters, to, to the a- African-American population in, in this uh, southern Mississippi town. And I think one of its successes is it makes you feel what it's like to be there. Mm. And here... They try. Rob Reiner very much wants to make a great civil rights movie here. I could the the idealism is seeping off the screen of what he wants to do, but he's not bringing his filmmaking a game here. Hmm. It it just sits on the screen dead. And I wonder how that compares on with a few good men as well. Um, maybe part because. Obviously, that final confrontation uh, at the, also features people being very much larger than life mm-hmm. and screaming out these uh, things in this courtroom setting. Maybe, just this idea, is that in both American President and in Few Good Men, though maybe different levels of effectiveness, Sorkin brings you into Sorkin world where people are going to be articulate and big and so on. And so that's comes across better. Right. They're also fictional stories. Mm -hmm. And this is a real life tragedy. Okay. And so you don't want the same tones as in in the Sorkin films because they would be the wrong tones for this story. Mm -hmm. But to replace unfortunately it seems to have been replaced with no tone whatsoever. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, of a of a guy who was able to balance different tones quite decently in many of his earlier films. And I mean, I guess it sounds like he didn't really have a handle of how to approach this in a historical way. And perhaps maybe 
the fact that it is on a real event and not like a, a story, the like the story making that's done as earlier films is once removed because it's clearly a person's version of events mm-hmm. or a person's take on events. Whereas here, no, it's real people who've done these like real things. And so maybe you're adrift because of that. Right. And, and also maybe the focus on Alec Baldwin's character, the you know idealistic white lawyer in the story of a, a, an African-American tragedy could have been shifted. We, we could have seen this through the point of view of, of Medgar Evers' widow, mm-hmm. and that could have changed the structure of the film to something that would feel more immediate. Okay, gotcha. Which is ironic because that's kind of the... Um, uh, a similar issue that I had against Mississippi Burning in the sense that, hey, the African-American characters might have a compelling story and maybe you didn't really need the surrogate to go and say, well, look, if this if this white person uh, is, uh, their innocence is ruined, can you see where the real tragedy is? <laughs> right, well, I think it's, it's, it's a difference in execution. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. So, well, speaking on difference in execution, right? The next film doesn't have those particular issues of fidelity to like a historical source. We're talking about uh, 1999's The Story of Us. Which is about a marriage in crisis. Michelle Pfeiffer and Bruce Willis, minus his bunny suit, are marital children, but the spark has gone out, and all they seem to do is bicker. Now we follow the path of their romance through flashbacks and their mixed emotions on their separation and looming divorce. This looks like and feels like when Harrier met Sallier. The same kind of tones, the same kind of um, uh, arguments, and even the uh, confessions on the couch make a return in this movie. But where they worked in When Harry Met Sally, here they just end up failing quite badly for numerous reasons. Right. One is... I don't feel that that Michelle Pfeiffer and Bruce Willis are able to gear up the kind of drama they think they can here, particularly Bruce Willis, uh, who is really good when when cast correctly, but is is often just death when when miscast. <laughs> and part of that is, is something that that's not his fault, but has to do with his hair, because, <laughs> or, because we get these flashbacks. Uh, to the younger Bruce Willis and younger Michelle Pfeiffer, and they're wearing wigs. And um, no matter what else happens in this film, the thing I will not forget is the ridiculous mullet wigs that Bruce Willis is forced to wear in the flashback scenes. It is a most righteous (laughs) skullet that he has on. And 
maybe you, maybe some people who are familiar with Michael Mann's Heat can get some enjoyment out of um, uh, watching this movie and imagining the psycho killer Wayne Grove from Heat being <laughs> one half of a, a troubled relationship. <laughs> so they they try to get past these very vanilla leads by giving them a group of Borscht Belt best friends. Mm-hmm. Some, and we, we actually do have uh, the same writer as in North uh, coming back, uh, who is Alan Zwiebel, who I can only guess has a fondness for this kind of humor because we have a supporting cast that includes Reiner himself, uh, Paul Reiser, Rita Wilson, Julie Haggerty as the main couple's best friends, and they get all the all the funny lines. But as much as it's kind of a relief to get away from the boring main characters for the wise-ass friends, I noticed that their cadence was very familiar, and not just Borschfeld cadence, but very specifically Seinfeld cadence. Oh, really? Which is interesting because Jason Alexander and Julia Louis-Dreyfus from Seinfeld were two of the actors in North. Right. Reiner seems to have taken a fondness to Seinfeld, which who could blame him, but by giving the, uh, these characters that cadence, it just completely takes you out of the movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's it's banter, man. Like it is, the delivery is that of like the comic who plays second to last at an episode of the Ed Sullivan Show, but finally he gets to go blue. He gets <laughs> to make comments upon like how um uh, the difference on penis and vaginas and. In a really painful monologue by uh, Rita Wilson, and oh, yeah. and then and then Rob Reiner himself playing a character in the movie gets even worse as he's describing that his ass should really be another way of looking at it's the top of his legs. That was bizarre. Yeah, yeah. I know. From where did the top of his legs that he pulled that stuff out from? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, here's the thing: is this is actually the, be- the more the better parts of the film, because there's nothing really to make fun of in the central relationship, which is really just your standard divorce stuff. And what about the children? And men are from Mars, and women are from Venus. Right, right. It has all like much like how North had like the most cringeworthy stereotypes, not because of their offensiveness, but how lamely cheap and easy they were. Here, it gives this marriage relationship the level of a Lockhorns comic. It is such on the level of, you don't ask for directions era uh, simplistic inanity. And we didn't actually didn't even get to the craziest part, which is when they meet a succession of, of different psychiatrists uh, as part of their marriage counseling, each one with a different physical ailment. Oh, that's right. And yeah, I, mean, I think I managed to block those parts out. <laughs> including the Freudian guy with a prostate problem, which I think was the writer's attempt at being meta. <laughs> and he says, you know, every time in bed, you're actually sleeping with six people. And then in what may be Rob Reiner's lowest moment... He decides it's worth depicting it, featuring such insights into human nature as presented by Betty White and, God help us, Red Buttons. No, no, this is one of the strangest scenes 
This is one of the strangest scenes I have ever seen. Now, in addition to those actors, Tom Poston from the Newhart Show and uh, is in bed. Yes, all these randomly selected from a hat uh, old actors are now in bed with Bruce Willis and Michelle Pfeiffer in what I think was meant to be a moment of hysterical comedy, but is more just like... It just—it's just. What are they doing? What is what? What's happening here? And that—and that's the the imbalance of this movie, which is attempting the the comedy drama combination, which Rob Reiner himself has done very well at previously. Just showing the inability to even balance that out. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing: I, I don't want to be too hard on the story of us because I truly think his next film is far worse. <laughs> and here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. Jilly loves you more than you will know. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, bless you, please, Mrs. Robinson. Heaven holds a place for those who pray. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. That is Rumor Has It. Released in 2005, it's about a family whose scandalous secrets were the inspiration for the book and the film of The Graduate. Ah, so it's based on a true story again. (laughs) (laughs) So when Jennifer Aniston finds out her grandmother, played by Shirley MacLaine, was the basis for Mrs. Robinson, she seeks out uh, the Lothario who slept with every generation of her family, a wealthy tech giant played by Kevin Costner for some reason, who may or may not be her father. <laughs> so let's start with the obvious. This is a dumbass plot, too. <laughs> <laughs> Evidence number one of why Jennifer Aniston did not become a bigger movie star. She is the center of the film and her character is a bunch of the most awkward physical quirks I've ever seen an actor attempt to deliver for the sole purpose of trying to say to the audience, look how adorable I am. Love me. Yes. If you were to say that someone had landed from another planet and is crudely trying to figure out how the cheekbones and the furrowed brow and the smirk of the lips can be used to try to fake being a human until the rest of the invasion force can show up, that kind of gets a hint as to what Aniston's doing. Because what Aniston's not doing is acting. When she has, time and time again in the movie, she has these moments where she's, oh, I'm supposed to be adorable. Uh, Do I furrow my brow here? Do I crinkle my nose? Do I uh, shake my head? Oh, just so. What what shall I do? And you see her do these random things that looks more like she's having a medical condition than actually inhabiting a real character. While Friends was not a showcase for advanced acting, she certainly didn't show the kind of discomfort 
uh, on TV that she seems to show in this film. And so you have now a combination of a lead actor struggling, a script based on a ridiculous idea, which is reformatting The Graduate for some reason into this updated version, when of all movies, The Graduate was a film of its time. And then casting Kevin Costner in the Dustin Hoffman role, yeah, which is weird. Super, super curious decision to have the laconic, easygoing, um, stoic presence of Costner. That's not uh, Benjamin Braddock's presence <laughs> from The Graduate. Right. Uh, uh, apparently, originally, they did want to get Anne Bancroft and Dustin Hoffman to reprise their roles, but uh, oh. they, they were not having it. Oh, so very okay. wise, wise move on their part. Then we have uh, Shirley MacLaine uh, as the Mrs. Robinson uh, uh, avatar who, oh, old people swearing. Nothing funny than funnier than that, right? Right. The borscht belt hits below the belt yet again with this just, yeah, oh, wow, she's old and yet she's um, swearing up a storm and she drinks a lot, she smokes a lot, and she, li- and she likes to have sex. Oh, my God. Now, I want to give <sighs> some credit, though, to Mark Ruffalo as uh, Jennifer Aniston's fiancé. Because he is the only person in this movie who isn't pissing me off throughout the entire thing. (laughs) He's got nothing to work with, but he's trying. He seems to have kind of a character and some ideas about his character. And he's the only part of this movie that isn't incredibly cloying. Even though he's literally cloying to the father, uh, played by Richard Jenkins. Right, he's earlier. giving him unwanted hugs. I mean, the, yeah. the, the, the script does, isn't helping him. But I'm just saying that that with every single actor failing remarkably, that, that Ruffalo doesn't, I'm going to give him a mulligan for that. Yeah. I, I, and but but I can't do that for Costner because you described him kind of as laconic and whatever. I, I I think that was was charitable because for me, he was sleepwalking through this film. He looked like he wanted to be in any other movie but this. Oh really? <laughs> you, you found some sort of distaste of being in the role emanating from him. That's interesting. <laughs> this movie script is literally fumes from a 1956 Chevy Nova exhaust put into barely literate form. Okay. And it, and in fact, when you look through the motions of the script, it's actually quite depressing. It's probably more depressing than scenes from stand by me. Honestly, you know, it just exposes how banal your existence is that you literally couldn't think of anything better to do even when you have all this opportunity. And that's how I feel of every character (laughs) in Rumor Has It. Because time and again, they just put Jennifer Aniston in sexual situations because it's completely clear they have nothing interesting to say about The Graduate, nothing interesting to say about um, uh, Missing Fathers, which is ironically another theme of Rob Reiner's that's been brought out in other films much better. Instead, it's just like, I got nothing. Let's have let's let's have her have sex in an air, airplane bathroom. Uh, let's have her have sex here. Let's have her be flirtatious there. Just like they got nothing in the midst of all this plenty, they got nothing to say. 
So speaking of fathers and sex, uh, we haven't gotten to the creepiest element of the film, which is that when uh, Jennifer Aniston is is seeking out uh, Kevin Costner's character, she does so convinced that this is her father, that she is the result of the uh, graduate uh, dalliance. The minute Jennifer Aniston finds out He's not her father. She sleeps with him. Yeah. Now that's creepy shit. <laughs> yeah. It, it would be it would be creepy if it wasn't apparent that the script really had nothing else to nothing else to go with it. And in, in, in other words, at this point, Jen Anderson's character is nothing but a neurotic maniac. Actually, <laughs> right? She's she's apart from her attempts to be adorable. Even if you want to buy into it, you can't avoid her actions, which are just these ridiculously selfish, um, thoughtless. And reckless actions. Like, I think she literally, like, just abandons, uh, multiple times abandons Ruffalo's character to go on this pursuit right. without barely telling him anything. And 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 then I, I think she tries attempts at guilt, but because of the previous problems we discussed with her, her acting, yeah. she can't convey that. Right. So we're, we're, we're just left in a mess. She looks like someone who is <laughs> trying to appear guilty, which, as you know makes her look that much worse <laughs> that because it's, she's so obviously faking it. <laughs> because the film is set in Pasadena, and unfortunately, and uh, please correct me, all anyone Pasadenans uh, listening in, is like, it reflects this Pasadena state of mind. People with too much wealth and too little imagination who are just dallying over who's idea of be of having the people from the graduate maybe that's what's like in our lives you know mm -hmm. it's some silly wish fulfillment trifle that unfortunately and unnecessarily became a movie premise it's been too long since i left the shed you kicked the bucket i'll swing my i always remember the pack that we made too young to die but old is a great The next one we're going to discuss is a little better only because you, you really can't get much worse, but not much. It's uh, The Bucket List. Ah, uh, The Mor Bucket List. Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson play the old codgers in uh, this 2007 film. Freeman's trivia-obsessed mechanic and, and Nicholson's ridiculously wealthy hospital owner find themselves in the same hospital room with the same diagnosis of terminal cancer. But rather than go quietly, the oldsters embark on a worldwide adventure to live their final days to its fullest. Okay, so it's a very, very, very long-delayed sequel to... Um uh, cuckoo's nest right because once again jack nicholson is triumphing over his uh, sterile hospital environment right yeah that that's that's a, a, a good comparison if cuckoo's nest just completely sucked uh, <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll give the film this it actually brought the term bucket list into the modern lexicon which is kind of cool the way it's utilized in other ways having nothing to do with this movie yeah but 
And and the other thing I'll it's give much better. It's a much better social trend than uh, people in idle suburbs thinking they're related to the graduate. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and to also be a little charitable, it's hard to have a movie where just about every scene has Morgan Freeman uh, and or Jack Nicholson in it and not to have some moments of charm just based on the charisma of the actors. But they're few and far between, and that's really all they have going for it. They, they Instead of developing characters, they give them these corks. So Morgan Freeman is this uh, Jeopardy champion trivia buff. So wherever he goes, in lieu of giving him dialogue or a character or anything, he just spouts trivia. Wow. And it's like, oh, well, that's interesting. And then Nicholson is doing his kind of Christmas Carol bit where he starts out as the grumpy old man, but is, you know, soon going to have his heart warmed. Meanwhile, it's as mediocre as it gets. Oh, my God. Meanwhile, they're both dying and it le- and it's being played for laughs. So the scenes where they're in, in chemotherapy and, and vomiting, these scenes are supposed to be comedy. Damn movie. What the hell? <laughs> yeah. Hmm. It's like it's like when he approaches, like when Rob Reiner approaches like more vulgar subjects, he's just seems to be missing quite a bit, with the possible exception of the leeches and, and um, right. uh, Stand by Me, of course. Right, right? And, and and there's the you know the comedy drama problem here again is that it wants to be a comedy, but it's about dying. Now, frankly, it turns out in it, this movie both things are hard. And this is rough material for any kind of any director to make work. And the lack of imagination and, and the lack of effort here shows uh, Morgan Freeman is narrating per usual. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope nobody will consider this um, a spoiler, but his character dies and continues to narrate from the grave. <laughs> So Morgan Freeman really likes narrating. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like sounds like someone is going with if on the unfortunate time that Morgan Freeman passes from this world, we know who's going to be doing the eulogy. Morgan, Morgan Freeman. Freeman. <laughs> uh, and and then their travels because because Jack Nicholson has unlimited amounts of money, so we get to follow them through all corners of the globe to go on um, bucket list adventures like skydiving and driving a race car that have no dramatic or comedic impact whatsoever. It's just oh, they're driving a race car now. Hmm. You know, it's kind of interesting about how um, that you point out that the character has tons of money so they can do whatever they want. Because in a weird way, that might be something that underlines Reiner's like, like sort of lack of success. And I think in an interesting way. I mean, look at his earlier movies, which are about people who, even when they're like princesses in The Princess Bride, she mm-hmm. kind of works in a squalor kind of environment, right? Mm-hmm. And then the characters in Stand By Me are working class, ki- are working class kids. Spile Tap, not successful, is the understatement of the year for, for them, right? Um, and, then, and then compare, um, but then compare 
that with what happens in North, whose part of the premise of it is that it has an infinite amount of money to just literally travel around the world doing anything he wants. You look at the house in Harry Met Sally and in the story of Us, and this is clearly these guys are not one for money. Mm -hmm. And I've already ranted about like just the idle rich dalliances that undermine what's the most unpleasant thing I found about rumor has it. Right. You know? And like, so, right? So like, isn't that, I mean, I think it's kind of weird how the more money his characters have, the the less dramatic and less interesting they become. That, that, is, that is a really good point because there does seem to be a pattern as we move into this uh, dire period of uh, a lot of rich uh, characters, yeah. including... The next movie we're going to talk yeah, about. Yeah, that's right. You know, like how um, in Albert Brooks, when we had their discussion, how the more movies he makes, the lower his stature comes. Like mm -hmm. he becomes lo uh, less and less in control until he becomes actually dead <laughs> in defending your life. But here, the characters rise and rise in stature. So they nearly can be, including where one of the concerns to of a family strife is, will the dad become governor? <laughs> in the next one we're talking about, being Charlie in 2015. Um, and this is a film about a disturbed young man, played by Nick Robinson, whose ever-increasing drug habit leads him in and out of rehab clinics. And in this film, his struggles to get clean are complicated by possible romance and a strange relationship with his famous father, who not only happens to be running for governor, but his previous occupation was a swashbuckling pirate actor. Get it? Mm. <laughs> mm. All right, you well, have you have heard one of the more clever things about being Charlie. Uh, the, it's actually a movie that is uh, close to Rob Reiner's heart because it was written by his son, Carl Junior Reiner, or <laughs> Carl's Junior Reiner. <laughs> Carl's. <laughs> How cool would it be if Rob Reiner's kid was named Carl's Junior Reiner? I think that'd be quite awesome. It was uh, co-written by his son, Nick Reiner, who in, the, in real life uh, did suffer from addiction. And uh, this was his attempt to kind of get that time in his life out into this uh, screenplay. So, I mean, the good news is we're a little bit out of the nadir of the last few films we've discussed. It's, it's, it's not good. Uh, the, <laughs> it just kind of plays like this uh, boring after-school special, don't do drugs. It, pretty much all the bases of the don't do drugs message are covered here. Mm -hmm. It also engages in kind of what may be the epitome Possibly of first world problems as, once again, you can't connect to your father, but this time because he's running for governor and he has election uh, things to deal with, like, 
how are people supposed to empathize with a guy's like, boy, haven't you all been there when you're like, need to talk to your dad, but he's over in a campaign, stop passing long burgers? Right, and, and Carrie always plays the father as the villain of the piece throughout most of this. He just doesn't want to have anything to do with his son because he'll embarrass him on the campaign trail and he'll act out and ruin his chances of, of becoming governor. And and his wife, uh, Charlie's mother, is you know constantly like, but he's our son. Yeah. And he's like, but I'm running for governor. And it's like, all right, now, and, and so this black and white dynamic is set up at the end of the movie they try to repair it by humanizing him a little bit but it really hasn't been established and comes off like this last minute effort to try to create a relationship a father-son relationship here yeah yeah that's shares an unfortunate similarity with the story of us and like we've laid out this problem Let's have a speech at the end, and mm-hmm. everything will turn out all right. Right. And one of the weirder quirks of the film is by the end of the campaign, we're, we're actually following the election results like we care. <laughs> because, again, we have not been given any incentive to care about this about the, the neg- father character. We have a negative incentive. Right, right. And he's... And meanwhile, we are supposed to be caring about Charlie and his struggles. So to all of a sudden have this suspenseful moment of will he or will he not win the election is like, really? You don't you really don't know what kind of movie you're about, do you? There's a scary moment where for me, when he uh, is greeting the at the podium and these cameras are flash uh, flashing in him and he, and uh, the sound is muted. And I was very, very scared that um, that this would be written in a um, story of us kind of way where he would say, you know, at this moment, I can only care about one constituent, my <laughs> son, my poor, poor son. <laughs> but it fortunately does not do that. And to the film's credit, and I think part of the reason that it moves a little bit out of the nadir we described is because... It's written by a younger generation. Mm-hmm. And so someone who is not taking in these jokes that are now to him 4,000 years old. So all those Borscht Belt comic situations are gone. Replaced by them are, are, young, are young jokes based on Instagram and Tinder. Right. And, and there's a lot more like provocative in terms of sexuality and the profanity flows quite a lot more in the, uh, more in this one. While I can't go in like so far as to say it feels real, it does feel less like an arcane subject of a carnival <laughs> like some of his earlier <laughs> film topics turned out to be. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll take what we can get. <laughs> Any movement upwards is appreciated. There's one other detail of this movie that I find really kind of weird and want to bring up is that the son character is trying to make it on his own, away from the shadow of his parents, and he's trying to strike out as a stand-up comic. And it just kind of seems to me that if you're a person who's stuck to with depths of despair and doesn't need to have a bunch of negative opinions thrown your way or a lot of harshness that drives you into um, chemical abuse, 
Kind of being a stand-up comic is the worst ever job for you to do, man. And to show no signs of being funny. which <laughs> I actually begged is, to differ slightly about oh, it. Oh, you thought he uh, kind of had it, what it took? I like, no. I did find some of his jokes funny, but to have what it takes in stand-up requires, among other things, a degree of self-loathing, which would have driven him to the chemical uh, dependency <laughs> way earlier. <laughs> Right. Well, I guess at least he was funnier than um, Warren Beatty's alleged stand-up comic in Mickey One. <laughs> Holy crap. Talk about a Jennifer Aniston level of performance of someone who knows how to do facial muscles, but doesn't know why. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what we had hoped would be uh, to talk a little bit about uh, Rob Reiner's most recent film, LBJ, but uh, we're recording this in kind of the Netherland between the time that the movie is out of the theaters and not yet available on DVD. So it's uh, about uh, Lyndon Johnson starring uh, Woody Harrelson. Reviews have not been stellar. Do we think there is any hope for Reiner? Or what do you think was the ultimate thing that got him wrong? It's the question of this podcast. It's been since 1995 that I would say that Reiner has done good work. And it's difficult to see. I mean, I hope I hope it happens. It would be wonderful if he had a surprise left in him. But, but it's difficult to see after such a long period of subpar work how he can recapture what seemed second nature to him in his period of greatness. So what happened? I mean, there's there's probably a lot of different answers and things we can never know. I mean, the writing thing seems to be one of the most obvious things because you definitely see a different level of writer. But he yeah. is somebody who could... You know, he still has enough uh, cachet in Hollywood. Uh, the, the bucket list did make money. He could be working with better writers. What happened to his ambition? Is it something personal? Does it have to do with age? Is it simply that he said what he needed to say as an artist? I don't know. Um, you know, LBJ sounds like it might be something... You know, he could, you know, he's very political, so he might have something that he really wants to say about that. But mm -hmm. again, if we were to take reviews as an indication, and which you, you can't always do, but we haven't seen the film, uh, as far as we know, that might not have happened. He's kind of shown up on TV uh, here, here and there, like fairly recently, and he seems to be just a quick wit and, and pretty vivacious. So it doesn't look like just a guy who seems to be running on fumes. But maybe it's a matter of where his second half of his career is a little bit like how a band's sophomore album, where the stuff that he wanted to, like you were implying, like the stuff that he really wanted to say, he got out of his system in this first batch of films, and now he's has a measure of success and and I think the film topics have re reflected more and more wealth and success. And also an attempt to re repeat his earlier efforts. A lot of these later films 
are reworkings of the When Harry Met Sally yeah. formula. And if it's not doing that, it's uh, reworking the Stand By Me coming of age formula. Yeah, and it could possibly that LBJ is reworking the Ghosts of Mississippi formula, which, as you were saying, was not all that successful in the first go-round. He seems that like he's was at his best where he was able to go like take a, a look in the past or the stories of the past that people tell themselves. Right. He had it where he, he had the sense of whimsy yeah. was undiminished. Right. Yeah. I think that's key, right? That there is a good sense of whimsy and wit and enthusiasm that, uh, co- that came across in his more, a lot more in his earlier work. I think if there's a single one thing that, might put a jump start to the kind of um, uh, his career. It might be if he goes and connects with King. Because I think King, Stephen King, has a look at nostalgia and looking back at the past that I want to say that Reiner shares. And I think that brings that comes across in that it's probably not a coincidence that two of the most successful Stephen King treatments that do value by Stephen King's work have been done by Rob Reiner. Right. So maybe if there is some way that he wants to look back at the Kennedy-Johnson history, maybe that um, uh, Stephen King book about the Kennedy assassination might be something to explore. Just go go for an option or hang out outside uh, uh, King's, uh, King's <laughs> office. Something like that. And, and, I mean, in any case, we're very grateful towards Reiner for the great films he did manage to come out. And you can't take those away from him at the very least. Rob Reiner's career, 1984 through 1995. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Morgan Freeman couldn't have narrated that better. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found this uh, an interesting exploration of a director who is not talked about as much. Exactly. It was very cool to like take a look at these films in the contrast and uh, explore what um, what made him successful or not in uh, over his range of films. If you guys have comments and opinions or criticisms on what you think of Reiner or his work or us and our work, feel free to send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes at Directors Club Podcast. And we're on Facebook at Directors Club Podcast, on Twitter at DC Podcast. And uh, feel free to use any of these social uh, media measures to post in for what you would like us to talk about in terms of films. Next up, we have a very interesting director, I think, of uh, genre work and a couple of epic filmmakers down the line. So uh, once again, I want to reiterate that, Brad, it's been super fun to have the first year of this director's club session with you likewise uh, thanks to jim of the now playing network for giving us this opportunity and we hope to look uh look forward to you guys listening for the next episode of the director's club in the years to come happy 2018 everyone
Please, do me a favor. Help me out. I'm trying to establish myself as a filmmaker. I don't want to have to go crawling back to television. I don't want to have to do Meathead becomes an investigative reporter. Please, help me out. You'll be helping yourselves. I swear to God. Thank you. Get those away. Thank you.